welcome to Decomposing Worm, a worm analysis podcast. That's Clarence. He's the first-time reader and literary expert. And that was Matthias. He's read the story before. In this 12-episode series, we're using critical theory to explore the superhero web serial Worm from a high-level perspective, covering Worm in six 300,000-ish word chunks. Mm-hmm. And today is part two of book two, Perspectives. So here we're going to be applying literary theory to Worm, combing through um, arcs 9 through 14 with the lens of a couple of theorists. Um, well, their theories, the theorist theories, and uh, we'll kind of go into how we're going to use them um, uh, as we as we kind of get into our topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, as usual, if you haven't read uh, up through arc 14 yet, please do. This is a also a full spoilers discussion. So um, this is our second perspective episode. I think we have a slightly better handle on what we're trying to do here. So hopefully yes. uh, we won't stumble as much getting into it. Um, I was really pleased with how much people said that they did not like um, the, the the last one. So that was really neat. Um, yeah, people were like very open to it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> man, the, the, the theorists that I picked for this, it was... A lot. It's a lot harder than Marx. Oh gosh, <laughs> Marx is so easy comparison. Um, so uh, the order that we're going to be doing this is um, first we're going to do our character studies. Uh, I'm talking about uh, Labyrinth and a bit of Burn Scar, and Clarence is talking about uh, Cherish, Cherish and Region, or just Cherish. No, it's just Cherish, but like it's hard to talk about Cherish mm-hmm. without right. mentioning Region just a bit. Yeah, and uh, then we'll go into our, our theorist stuff. Um, Clarence, who are the people you're talking about? And the concepts? Um, I'm talking about uh, Althusser mainly um, and his concept of interpolation, um, of like the right. whole, you know, like recognition. And I guess you could tack on the idea, like I'm talking about materiality, but I don't really have a specific person to tie it to. Yeah, because that's kind of, it comes from, I think, a lot of people. Yeah. And it's kind of, it's, I, I think we just couldn't figure out who specifically yeah, who it originates. Yeah, specifically to trace it to, because there's, it's just so broad, a concept. Yeah. And we'll go into what that is when yeah, we yeah. talk about it. Um, and then my section, uh, I wanted to talk about deconstruction. So uh, Derrida, um, he outlined that. And it's a little bit different from the pop culture understanding of the word. Um, just a little bit. The, 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 the pop culture TV tropes definition of deconstruction is derivative of the Jacques Derrida's deconstruction method thing. Um, but it's really complicated. But to talk about it, I decided to talk about structuralism. And that's kind of be, as I wrote it, it kind of turned into just like a lecture. So we'll see how that goes. And if you guys are, are too bored by how much I talk about not warm stuff, you guys let me know. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to it. Yeah, it's kind of like setting up, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like Yeah, and then a... in between it all, it's going to be uh, little little bits and sections to liven things up. Mm-hmm. So Hopefully, yay. Hopefully, yes. Also, full um, full disclosure, we we again we claimed this before, but this is like reinforcing. Yes. We are not we are not experts in literary analysis. We you know we're we're we are but students and kind of after students, you know, in that liminal space. But we're not fully formed, you know, professional literary experts, you know, who are like fancy and acclaimed and such. Mm-hmm. So you know, just take take it with that in mind. <laughs> Many grains of salt. Ideally, you know, you get interested in... Whole tablespoon. Ideally, if you don't know what we're talking about and you get interested in it, go read The Theorist or go read someone else talking about The Theorist, which might be easier. Mm. Um, If you do know 
what we're talking about and we're talking about it wrong, um, then you can send us an email and explain it also, to us. Also, we are sorry. <laughs> also, we are sorry. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Um, all right, let's let's get into it, right? Mm, um, here we go. So we're going to start off with talking about Labyrinth, um, also known as L. So uh, when I first did the Danny one, um, I realized the way I, I started going and I, I realized I didn't have a plan on how I was going to talk about it all. Mm-hmm. So um, I still don't really have a plan for this, but I wanted to structure it a little bit by just laying out the facts first before we start um, diving into what her character is saying. So mm-hmm. she's this young girl, right? Um, her power, she, she's rated a, a shaker 12. Um, we see her uh, a couple times until her her interlude, but her interlude is the first mm-hmm. time we get actually like any insight beyond she's a girl who sometimes gets lost in her own worlds. Yeah, um, yeah. And even the times before we see her power, it's it's pretty hard to understand what's going on. Um, actually, there's a when she 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 helps with the fight against Oni Lee, and there's the part where she starts raising these these pillars out of the ground and. Um, then Taylor, you know, gets touched by her and, you know, they all fall away. And then she's watching Oni Lee, like, stumble over something that's not there. Yeah, yeah. And I think the times that I've read it before, I had interpreted that as, like, he's dodging something that was in his, like, previous teleportation. Like, mm. something was about to hit his his clone and then he teleported. And so, like, both clones that was left behind and when he teleported, dodged the thing. But that's not what happened. He's actually dodging the the pillars and stuff that don't exist anymore and there's another part where he like teleports to the top of a building and then falls 15 feet and stuff like that mm-hmm. so in retrospect that makes a lot of sense i don't know why i didn't notice it the first yeah, I feel three like times I, I read it it was hard to kind of figure out quite at the beginning i think because taylor doesn't know what's going yeah, on yeah yeah a lot of a lot of the time it's kind of where we're kind of following her where we mm-hmm. we don't know because she doesn't know yeah yeah so um the the first time we really get to to know her is of course her interlude mm-hmm. um and what's really fascinating about this is uh she doesn't actually show up in the narration until eight paragraphs in actually the first the first time we see any mention of her is the eighth paragraph in which it's a line of her thoughts but we don't mm-hmm. actually know who she hasn't been named yet so we don't yeah, know yeah. that it belongs to her we assume it actually is a thought belonging to uh, spitfire because she's the first one mentioned mm-hmm. yeah um, she her name doesn't appear until the twelfth paragraph, and even then, um, no, not the twelfth, the fourteenth, and even then, it's just like a mentioning of her banging on the window. So yeah. from from her very first appearance, we see how like disconnected from reality she is. Um, that she doesn't even show up in her own story. Yeah, for so I think long. it's even like even more than reality is like her own identity of like mm-hmm. a self. Yeah, yeah, a lot of it that like the way that this thing starts off is very out of body, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a part where it describes how right now it's a good day, right? So she uh, isn't in her other world so much. It's kind of, she, she describes it as having to look through like a spyglass, right? To see, to, to, to search the world, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than taking in the whole thing at once. And it kind of makes you wonder when she is in a bad place, maybe looking at reality is kind of like looking at the other end of spyglass as well. Which is not fun to think about. No, that sounds terrifying. Yes. Um, so I have two or three things I want to talk about here. Um, the, the first is how uh, fault or labyrinth is actually like a pretty good person, and there's a couple of places mm-hmm. where that comes in, into place. Um, 
I, I think it's really adorable that she like really sees them, uh, the rest of the Fault Lines crew as family, and that comes up a couple times. She like really does care about these people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It and they take care of her. Um, I think that's that's pretty sweet. Um, and we'll return to the idea of her being a good person in a second. The second is, of course, the nature of her power, mm-hmm. uh, and then the third is her interaction with Burnscar. But we can get to that in a second. So uh, her power is this. It, it, it's kind of really hard to understand, especially hard to explain without like in without bringing in my influences of how I know the rest of the universe is constructed in Worm. Huh. Um, but even then, it's it's still pretty hard to understand as you know the, the whole phased in reality thing, right? Like with the fight against the merchants, um, Taylor asks herself the question: like, is Gregor like seeing everyone like float around? And the answer is yes, I think. Oh. Um, so, so she has like, like physical impact, like her her visions mm-hmm. and constructions. Yeah, they're have not material. They're not impact. just illusions. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I, don't, I don't think I realized that before. I mean, I probably yeah. like recognized it as as I was reading, but I don't think I. It didn't like register, yeah, for, register for the future as knowledge. Yeah, like in in her interlude, Burnscar is is setting fires everywhere, mm-hmm. and the way Labyrinth you know fights back is she brings in this this statue that is filled with water, and she what's so fascinating about it? So she has to kind of cobble it together as it's coming out, right? So it's like yeah. it exists in this other world, and yet she modifies it as it comes into this one. And she has to modify it with something that already exists. And I just find it so fascinating that... So, so when she's searching for um, this, whatever the mechanism she needs to activate the statue, mm-hmm. uh, several ones come to mind, including one... It says uh, the, the portcullis, no, uh, the, the chain was too rusted, uh, too prone to, to snapping, which is like such, such character tied to this thing that may or may not exist. Uh, yeah. Like... Oh, like, how does she know it's too prone to snapping, you know? Like, I don't know. It's mm. so She knows the, the, the properties of this thing, but she yeah. created it. And, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I find that very fascinating. And just the fact that she pulls a mathematical puzzle into this world. Mm-hmm. So a puzzle is something that you can't really... That is difficult to solve. But she created it, right? And... It, well, it seems like I, she has so much time to learn space yeah yeah it's just really fascinating so she has all these other worlds and she, she goes through them um and and lists them at one point let me read that part so she she lists these pocket worlds that she tries to search for something to pull out yeah yeah oh the, i remember that i remember mm-hmm. that yeah so quoting there was the high temple Faultline in the hypnotist state hired had talked her through it building a place that wasn't so influenced by l's negative thoughts and ideas it was a place she associated with personal triumphs, her inner strengths. At the opposite end of the coin was also the bad place. Of the worlds, it was the biggest by far. Nothing she could use there, she knew. She was intimately familiar with every aspect of it. She had spent a long time there. Then she lists some more. Um, the lonely hallways, no. The burning towers, definitely no. The barren ruins. So we'll, we'll talk more about the barren ruins in a second, but just, just this idea of like... Well, actually, let me continue the quote. Okay. The barren ruins. She had almost forgotten. It had been her first attempt at making a world outside the bad place. It had worked up until the moment negativity and self-loathing crept in through the cracks, filling mm. in details where she had where she didn't want them. Ugly details. What had resulted was a beautiful, solemn landscape rigged with traps and pitfalls, as if the landscape itself was eager to hurt or kill anyone who didn't watch their step. 
So it's like a physical manifestation of intrusive thoughts. Yeah. What's so interesting to me is that it's such, it's so, the the power is working at such a metaphorical level, right? Mm -hmm. Like in this other world, it doesn't, there's no people in the other world until she starts bringing, bringing that world into the other reality, right? Yeah, Yeah. So like the pitfalls and traps don't matter in that other world. So the idea of like, it being self-loathing and negativity and stuff like that, the, like the, the, these emotions get translated into things that would actually harm people. But it's so like symbolic because there aren't any people there. Yeah. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. And like pitfalls aren't like that ugly either. Like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure they are, but it's like, it's only, it's, it's, a, it's a threat, but you need a, you need an actor there to, mm-hmm. for that threat to be a threat. Right. Yeah. Um, it just has potential energy. Yeah. So I just find it so fascinating that, like, her brain works with her power to change this emotion to that ends up, like, infecting this place. Yeah. Uh, and turning into something else. I don't yeah. know. It's like houses it, for mm-hmm. her emotions. Yeah. It's so... In her mind. Mm-hmm. I'm really having trouble articulating it. Um, but uh, it says that everything turned ugly, unpredictable, and dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. um... The way that I was looking at this as like a metaphor, her her power in general, right, is uh, so, so later on we see her when she starts interacting with Brinscar, the bad place starts creeping in, right, mm-hmm. and it's it comes from the asylum. It it's influenced by the idea of the asylum, and there, but it's so much worse, right? It's like uh, yeah, uh, what's that game? Not Resident Evil, the Evil Within. There's there's like a dangerous hospital in there it's like a silent hill where it's these this haunted place that is unreal right like here's the thing like yes the asylum that she was in i'm sure was really bad for her mentally right Mm -hmm. but it did not have uh razors taped to the walls and sticking out everywhere it did not have metal bars over the door probably anyway yeah we're we're, we're presuming a lot yeah um yeah yeah, but it seems uh, like she's kind of let her mind, or not let, it, like her mind has embellished on her memory. Yeah, and so the, the way that I'm viewing it, especially it, it, from the context of her like sitting inside the asylum as her environment slowly becomes this exaggerated version of it, mm-hmm. is kind of how when we sit, when we stay in our, you know, terrible uh, emotional states, our perception of reality, of our environment around us, changes to suit that and it's this feedback loop that makes it even worse yeah so she hated the asylum so her environment started turning into this hated place and that made her feel even worse because i think she can she can get hurt by her own power i think if she's not careful oh which is really interesting because she can actually she can make other people immune but she can't make herself immune i don't Mm -hmm. think i mean if she's in control i'm sure she can move the stuff out of the way but it's a physical thing to her yeah, yeah. Um, which uh, brings us to Burnscar. So Burnscar actually, I think, fo- serves as a, a foil to a Labyrinth. Um, Burnscar comes in and it's just really, it's such an interesting re- interaction where Burnscar was trying to murder people, but now the mm-hmm. fire is out. So the thing that was, you know, making her go extra violent is gone now. And she appears and she just tries to have a normal conversation and she thinks that they're friends. Yeah, it's and... such a radical shift in her behavior mm-hmm. of, like, entering and... this space and then speaking to Labyrinth. 
Yeah, and it's so sad because yeah. she she really does think that Labyrinth is her friend. And at the end of it, when she realizes, she asks, were we friends? And Labyrinth doesn't answer. Mm-hmm. There's a moment of anger, but then she's just apologizing. She says, like, fuck, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm really sorry, you know, I can't help it. And um, she she decides to leave. It's, yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's a really sad moment. There's So there's two things I want to point out here. Um, when she leaves, uh, Labyrinth decides to hug her, right? And she, she lies saying that we had some good times. And yeah. that's like, ugh, she's just doing that. I I mean, on one hand, she could be doing it just to make sure that Brinscar doesn't go kill some more people, right? Mm. Which is possible. But also, it's just like a nice thing to do. Yeah, it for, seemed like, for someone it, seemed who's like it was a, like a comfort provided yeah. sort of thing. Yeah, like softening the blow, mm-hmm. right? Saying, yeah, we weren't friends, but yeah, we totally had some good times. You don't have to feel awful about thinking that we had some good times, um, even though she probably should. Yeah. So the the way that I think that it works as a foil, right, is that Burnscar, uh, she... Her, her, when her, she uses her power, her inhibitions go away, right? She feels less guilty about things. Mm. Um, there's a quote here. She says that she can't help it, um, hurting people with the, with the fire. And Elle in her, her head insists that she can. She just doesn't try hard enough. Uh, Brinscar says, when I'm in the headspace, I don't want to leave it. And another thought follows from Labyrinth. Yeah, and you retreat into that state to avoid facing the guilt over things you've done. Use it to hide from your own fears. If I blame you for anything, it's for that. Then there's another little exchange. Can't, uh, Labyrinth saying, can't keep hurting people, Mimi. I have to. I can just use my power. Stay in that headspace where I don't feel bad, where I act the way the nine expect me to. And so I think the, the, both of their powers make them retreat into this other state where they don't interact with reality, right? And make, yeah, both of their yeah. powers make them escape from reality. But labyrinths is more they're they're both unintentional right they don't when their power activates they go whether they want to or not right mm-hmm. yeah but labyrinth really mm-hmm. labyrinths is usually a bad place right mm-hmm. bird scar is a place where while it might not be good it is not bad right and so yeah Labyrinth is trying to so hard. She she tries so hard to get out of it, right? So I think she gets especially upset. In fact, there's a couple of parts where it basically says that she's outraged, where Burnscar isn't trying to get out of that state mm-hmm. because it's good for her. Yeah, it seems like it seems like. I mean, this this is more of like a generalization about like all a lot of the nine is that because because they are they are not the kind of evil that has like like deep intentions i guess mm-hmm. they're just kind of chaotically evil mm-hmm. where they i mean i guess mannequin kind of has like but i mean his goals it's not it's not like step by step like how coils is or like there is there isn't like this intentionality in every single moment um mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of them have like have to kind of build that into even if they didn't have it before like burns car seem, seems to have had it before she joined the nine um but it seems like a lot of them kind of have to create that headspace to enter into in order to like participate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that headspace where they aren't viewing reality how it really is, mm-hmm. where people aren't people. Yeah, they're just things that you can burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing I want to point out is how uh, labyrinth is 
tries pretty hard to not hurt people with her power. I mean, I don't know, it, in fights and stuff, but in this interaction anyway, uh, the those razor blades are coming in and she intentionally like pushes them away and she asks Burnscar if she can touch her to anchor her and protect her from her space. Um, but Burnscar is the total opposite of that, mm-hmm. um, where she will subject people to her internal uh, turmoil as much as possible because she can. Yeah, yeah. And possibly it just, it feels good. I think there's also something else that you could read in there about how she retreats into that destructive, literally retreats into that destructive place as a way to attack people, right? She teleports through fires. Mm, Yeah. And how, like, all those destructive places are kind of the same place, right? All those fires are, you know, one step away from each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. The the last thing I want to point out, so... When Burnscar is going to leave, Elle specifically uses her power to unlock the door, right? Specifically letting Burnscar leave her mind space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of hard to wrap my head around all, all, all of these things. Um, but I think there's... It, it's interesting just how much is going on with this character and we see so little of her. Yeah, the, we really get like a really deep look um, in just this... In this interlude, I think, because mm-hmm. um, we, characters... we don't really see a lot of like like Fallen's crew later on, and then Burnsgar kind of isn't as involved as some of the other pieces or other people, not pieces of the nine. <laughs> I don't know why I said pieces, but we see Burnsgar. I think like just really only twice more. We see her fight mm-hmm. um, uh, with with Mannequin and burn down Skitter's place, right? Yeah, so yeah. she didn't learn anything from her talk with Labyrinth, obviously, but no. you know. That's that, that's that was going on. It, I mean, the, the chapter ends with um, Labyrinth saying, "It would be weeks before she had made up the ground she had just lost in terms of her mental health." Which is interesting. The word "ground" there, mm. uh, considering the ground is literally transforming into her mental space yeah, yeah. and pushing past the bad memories in the bad place. Uh, again, also that Labyrinth is literally the the term going staying in the bad place right mm-hmm. I'm in a bad place and she literally is yeah um, she reassured herself with the thought that she would get better in time she had gotten there once she could get there again if the others were okay as for Burnscar there would be no helping that girl and yeah it it does go that way the only other time we see her is with Imp uh, just going to visit the slaughterhouse nine, and in that she's just casual lounging with the rest of the nine and and yeah. playing with fire a little bit. So, yeah, yeah. She how did, I don't remember how does she die? Um, Brian smashes her head in with a Siberian, oh. t- with his Siberian projection, whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is pretty gruesome way to go, but it is. Yeah, but it's not like yeah. prolonged. No, no, it was, it was quick. Yeah, so. But yeah, the thing is that just, I I think the main tragedy with Rinscar is just like... She could have had that support network. Yeah, and it's just like, it's you you get in this place, and it's really relatable, like you get in this place where you think that you can't try, and so you don't. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it harder to try the next time, right? Because the more that she doesn't try, the more people she hurts, and the more guilt she she gets. Yeah, so it's like insurmountable. Yeah. By the time that she has time to think about it. Yeah, I mean, that's the point she, that when she talks to Labyrinth, the only person that is possibly in her support network, mm-hmm. right? I mean, not really, but... But, like, and yeah, not and, not quite, but she has the potential, yeah. too. Yeah, uh, and 
Labyrinth says, go to the birdcage, right? Mm-hmm. You, you would be safe there. You you know, just, you would stop hurting people as much. And Brinstra's like, no, I can't. I, I can't. I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And whether or not, you know, it's true that she could. I mean, I think it's likely that they could kill her, but like, it's probably still worth trying, Burnscar, because otherwise you're going to hurt more people. Come on. Yeah, she's um, kind of stuck. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. It's just a really sad place to get into when someone who needs help gets into a place where they are basically choosing not to help themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard to like. What 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 is the line there? You know, I I think Labyrinth is also when she's saying that you don't try and stuff like that. I mean, she's you know also viewing it from her own perspective. Maybe it's a lot harder to try as. As Burns Car. Yeah. I mean, you don't yeah. know what it's like in her head. They're so. each in their own, their own like journeys, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think about stuff like that a lot about just like, what, I mean, what is in the, in a, in a deterministic universe, right? What is willpower? What is the ability to choose to do things, right? Yeah. So, mm. and then thinking about that probably erodes your agency a bit too. So, yeah, it's just, um, uh, it's so frustrating. So often it's like, when you spend too much thinking, when you spend too much time thinking about things, it only makes it worse. Yeah, because then you're like stuck. Which in this. Um, I think it's the theme for for my stuff on this episode because those the deconstruction stuff really it's too really much me out a bit. Yeah. So, well, that's what I have for for labyrinth. Yes. Um, and uh, unless if you have anything else to to mention, we'll go on to yours. I think I think that sums up labyrinth pretty well. We can. I think so. Step into cherish. Mm-hmm. Um, hold on, let me move my coffee so it doesn't make funny little noises. Okay. Okay, cherish. Yes. So cherish. Um, cherish is one of the nine. As I so as I was kind of reading, and I mean, obviously we know that, but at the same time, she she is not. She doesn't like quite fit the bill, because mm-hmm. I mean, there there she is. She she does have this sort of like chaotic evil that I was talking about before where it's like unpredictable and like they have this sort of like murderous methodology that's um not really like goal oriented but hers she kind of does have a goal um in the way that the others don't um of and it's it's i mean it's not like a forward moving goal it's a to not be like to be safe or be protected and have that protection from her you know family Mm -hmm. that she left from right via Mind controlling the nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Where she's kind of, she, yeah, yeah. Where she, I don't know. She, she, she's a, she's a complicated one to kind of piece together. Um, mm-hmm. Because like, while at the same time that she is part of the nine, like she's still like she tucks away pieces of herself that like so that she, in in response to I think I would say in response to the kind of like Karen stick dynamic of the way that Jack runs the nine, like. What was the word you just used? Uh, oh, carrot and stick. Yeah, Sorry, the, the carrot and stick. I interpreted that as a, a theorist name I had never heard before. <laughs> carrot and stick. Mysterious, you know, carrot stick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So when, like, before before she even enters, um, she she already has this kind of like warped sense of the world, the same way the region does, where like she didn't grow up in this in this like warm idea of childhood. It was it was this like very competitive, very like. She already has that like paranoia and like suspicion. I I would say, of of mm-hmm. her of like, you know, her siblings, which I would say, as as like a very young child. I mean, not me, but like, hold on. The the concept of like growing up with people that you cannot trust, mm-hmm. like, kind of ruins your your like your ability to trust sometimes, right. or makes it very difficult 
um, to easily hand that out. And then at the same time, she's kind of like, she doesn't have the empathy um, that's like usually taught or demonstrated, this sort of thing, like learned. Um, so she she just has spent like her childhood learning how to play with emotions and not think about them in any sort of like serious way, I guess. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. She feels people's emotions, mm-hmm. but she doesn't empathize with them, even though she literally feels them. Yeah, but it's not the same where Regent, he, he wants what we were talking about before, where he wants to want Mm -hmm. to be able to empathize. She doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like she, she's sort of like accepted that she cannot, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Maybe even acceptance isn't, well, is it acceptance if like you didn't consider it in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Whereas like she, because of, because of the way that she, or the way that she conceptualized the world, um, as like a child, she doesn't think to think about that. You're right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Her. Oh, yeah. It's like that. It's like that physics poetry theorist who was, I don't remember what his name is, but the the one who was talking about like the imaginary space is, is that like first environment, you know, the child mm-hmm. and her first environment did not have empathy, did not have mm-hmm. the, the deep consideration of emotions at all. Yeah. Um, it didn't exist in there. Yeah. Yeah. So she was kind of like, she was, she it was just sort of handed this hostile environment. Yeah, I mean, like to her dad basically go, going around, everyone's emotions are whatever he wants them to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If he wants people to, to love him, they love him. If he wants people to be terrified, they're terrified. Mm. What? Yeah, it skips all the intervening steps of actual action and just gets to the effect. Yeah, yeah. Which is also something to note of, like, the ability to control oneself mm-hmm. and, like, one's bodily emotion, or, like, all of that, like autonomy wasn't something to be enjoyed or to like to be had um which kind of feeds into the way that she fits into the nine and the way that she does not fit into the nine um but before we go into that i wanted to i really wanted to bring up um the concept at we i mean i know i talked about the whole like music thing the way that she like you know imagines uh, with her power like the way that she describes it with music and everything um it got me thinking about this novella that Leo Tolstoy wrote um, about the about Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata, mm-hmm. um, where the uh, the main character, the husband, he he uh, he becomes very very jealous and suspicious of his wife, who's a violinist, and her piano player, um, because they're both like learning the Kreutzer Sonata, and the the husband is like the music, the composer has instilled emotion into you by performing mm-hmm. this and has instilled and, you know, sort of transferred that emotion into me because I'm sitting here listening to it. And so he like, I mean, he murders her in a jealous rage, I think, um, is how it ends up. I, I, I don't quite remember how the end, how the mm-hmm. ending goes. And, and we don't really know, like, if they had the affair or not, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's the emotion that has been, you know, stirred up, incited by the music right. itself. Um, so like the music, like, implies that the violinist and whoever's, and, and the piano player are in love? Or is it that the music is supposed to inspire jealousy specifically? Well, it gets sort of wrapped up um, okay. and muddled because it's like, the it incites both the idea of like lust between the two players, but then also jealousy and anger um, and suspicion and paranoia and all of this. Hmm. Um, because I mean, the, the scene where, the, like, where it's being performed, the main character is describing the rest of the audience and he's describing them as, as also being sort of like riled up by this. 
Hmm. Um, and then that was that was kind of like a thing that Tolstoy he had this whole essay about like art and and music of like of you know this this like transfer of of emotion from the composer to the to the listener to the viewer, um, which was it was just a very I I don't know if I fully agree with it, but it was just an interesting thing to think about um, in terms of Cherish and mm-hmm. where how she thinks about the way that she kind of you know picks apart and pushes at emotions as as she becomes this sort of like arranger or composer sort of thing director you know mm-hmm. creating dissonance um in each individual but yeah yeah but yeah i find her her power really fascinating because it's just she understands so much like not not just the feeling of the emotion but what those things are tied to mm-hmm. she's the closest to a mind reader in in the story i think yeah, because she, she's able to pick apart the emotion and how it's tied to, like, specific facts mm-hmm. and, and interpretations and feelings. And it's and it's not just, like, each individual. She can read it, like, at an interpersonal level and everything. Yeah. Yeah. I hope she comes back. I really like her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what happens at the end of, of Arc 14, right? Yeah, I know. But, I mean, it's, she's it's kind of... She's at the bottom of, of yeah, the but, ocean. I mean, but, like, she'll... With you a... You know, she could come back. Mannequin organs made to feel the negative emotions of the entire city that's she'd be very different when she returned (laughs) yeah i'd say so Hmm. yeah but okay so um back to her kind of like her first like entry into into the nine um because i go a lot into like kind of the the background of it Mm -hmm. because it seemed very relevant to like her actions um specifically of like when the scene where we see we first kind of enter um with with uh, the undersiders and the travelers um kind of standing and conversing with with um uh with the nine like mm-hmm. you know when the right when the when, villains when are like off Kavitol's chatting and everything face is cut open yeah mm-hmm. yeah um and and so jack kind of describes what uh what he asked her to to give up to like break of herself you know to uh, in order right. to like make her part of the nine like to kind of mark her um and irrevocably change and um it was interesting to note that it was that it was um he he took like control over her body right um in the way of like well specifically because he's the one he like i mean i guess mannequin did this but it was it was jack that made him that made her do everything over again um mm-hmm. is it like the tattoos and and even even in the moment where where he's like recounting this whole thing where he he she like she's required to bear her body to show like evidence as a demonstration of it yeah it's just that she doesn't have it's the same thing of like what she was stuck in as a child is that she doesn't have that autonomy over herself mm. um which i think is why it, it why so often um she she uses her power even like almost unthinkingly to exact control over others Mm -hmm. it's because she doesn't have that over herself necessarily um yeah yeah i mean the the inscriptions on the the tattoo are also like they they, they're all putting words in her mouth right yeah but they're they're all in such an ironic sense that the phrases on there next to these bodies are of the one on I forget what side of her it is, but one of them is right of this two old women 
basically like having sex and one is morbidly obese and the other one is like emaciated Mm -hmm. and all around is like want me um and other phrases like that and it i feel like another one is like take me help me or something like that this very like objectified or like this this like warped sense and it seems like it's not even necessarily her preoccupation with like like the definition of beauty and like maintaining that it seems more that it's that has been imposed upon her mm-hmm. by everyone else of like because she's not the one that's like recounting this tale right so it's like yeah he's saying it was you know it was when you willingly defaced that young unblemished body of yours that a little something inside of you broke and you began to think of yourself as one of us is that it seemed like he was the one that had kind of set that as the standard mm-hmm. um and then yeah i wonder what part of that thought was actually what got the cherish yeah because i don't know if it if it if it really was that you yeah because like it seemed like she kind of like the physicality of like her herself she had she like never really necessarily had power over that and then like even later on i mean not later on earlier when we're in her head you know she's thinking about like you know when she goes and asks like when she speaks to the man and and he's like oh do you need help and she's like do you think i'm pretty mm-hmm. but it's not really it's not really about her kind of seeking this, you know, affirmation. It's about her kind of like setting up this conversation to happen, right? Um, and her yeah, taking control of the conversation. Yeah, she um, it kind of does it to make him uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he right before that he's talking about like his his kid. Yeah. Um, and then there's another moment of it where she's talking about uh, where like all of her clothes, everything that she's wearing, um, like everything she owned, everything she used day to day was stolen. Right, and it wasn't like she didn't have money. Yeah. It was she had that option. What stopped her was the fact that she had a pattern going, right? And then it's like that the very act of stealing, like of of kind of being able to exert control over something besides herself, over her besides her body, um, and like where she goes and everything, right? So she's she's she has to go with the rest of the nine wherever they take her. Um, that she's kind of she's still living in that she she's living in that like not stopping, like not quite there yet except in like this liminal space that's mm-hmm. but it's not it's not necessarily the exactly the liminal space of the nine in their entirety do you know what i mean mm-hmm. where like i mean they're on the move and everything so and and it makes sense that you know that she would have this this pattern of of wearing things from different places all this changing out but to me it seemed like it, it was even more than like she was using these like material objects that were not hers to kind of to like not settle into where she like how she was functioning yeah with the nine yeah. it, it, it the thought strikes me that when you buy something it becomes yours yes right? yes but if she's stolen everything nothing on her is hers because mm-hmm. it's all someone else's so by making sure that everything that is on her body is not hers it's kind of reinforcing that this body is not hers right now yeah yeah she doesn't so have maybe to take- she has. She doesn't have to, kind of pick through what is and is not hers. What pieces that she is able to keep for herself. Yeah. Because um, it, it's all not her. Yes. It's, yeah. So she doesn't have responsibility over kind of what this body does. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which is actually in a thing to note of where like she she doesn't feel like she has control over herself, and she also sort of in a slightly different tack but still attached to the concept of like her not quite fitting in with the nine um 
is is that she nominated herself to join the nine. Right. It wasn't that they had picked her out. Um, and she nominated herself in order because she was like on the run, right? From because her 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 siblings like kept coming back to get her. And, like every time she ran away, because um, she was she was um, speaking to Regent Plant. But okay, anyway, so she was speaking to Regent about about um, like what happened after he left, mm-hmm. where she's like thought you should know that things got pretty shitty at home after you left. Daddy got really overprotective, angry. It sucked. All of this. Like she's kind of she's stuck. Okay, so so she was sort of stuck there when Regent left, and then when she left, she couldn't. It was it was it all kind of got jumbled up. Where like I'll go back to okay, I'll I'll start with the time bomb. I think, because mm-hmm. um, she has okay, so she has this time bomb right where it's like she has created for herself this cycle of anticipatory anticipatory death. Mm-hmm. Um, that is both insurance for her, but then also to me says that she's anticipating not like making out making it out. Of being with the nine, like she's accepted the fact that she will have to die with the nine. But then at the same time, mm-hmm. it's it's also functioning as like another piece of like power over herself. Yeah, because she's she, in control of her own death, mm-hmm. even though she's not in control of her own death. Yeah, where she's kind of like she's built in these small pieces of control that mm-hmm. would not be recognizable, um, especially because she's like she's still. Sp- and, you know, kind of placed in that liminality with the nine, but then she's like created her own, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then by by nominating Regent, she kind of like brings him into that. She like brings him into her specific kind of vein of liminality because she knows that he's also going to die. Like she's basically given him a death sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I suppose it could have like. They call it payback, I guess, but it seems like it's not. Like she knows that she's going to die too. I don't know. It it, it seems like this this they have a very peculiar sibling bond mm-hmm. to me. <laughs> I would I would agree with that. That that's what all of this like blundering that I'm doing is about. Is they're very difficult to figure out because they don't like they have they have a childhood that they grew up together. Yeah, and they both escaped it. And they both escaped it, but then it's that whole thing of like. Like, it's it's the whole thing of, like, um, Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath of, like, you left me, you know? Yeah. Um, and so then there's, and like, resentment of, that builds up because of that. Yeah. it's It kind of breeds a... I mean, this isn't quite the same scenario, but the crabs in the bucket kind of idea yeah. of, like, pulling someone else down just because they're above you. And yeah. And then no yeah. one gets out. Because he found, he found something that... He found a space where he could... You know, he has the potential to survive, but she, because because he left first, was kind of forced into a situation that she didn't necessarily want to join. I mean, she says that she it's because, like, she joins also because of boredom and all of this, but, like, the main reason she joins the Nine is for that protection that they offer. Yeah. Um, Which really goes to show you how bad home is. Yeah, it's, it's terrible. If she wants to it's terrible. Shack up with like... mass, serial mass murderers and tattoo herself all over just to get away from home. Yeah, yeah. Um,. Yeah, it's quite a choice that she makes, but I don't know. It just, it seems quite foolhardy at the same time, or like oh, yeah, naive sure. that she thinks that one, that they won't notice both like her sort of, you know, creating this dependency, but then secondarily that it would work, I guess. And I, I feel like we, we covered this in the last episode, but the concept like of individuals that, that don't really quite grow as attached as what she's hoping, I guess. I don't know. It, they they don't have like the same 
level of emotions to be influenced. Yeah, like the Nine, just because even if they loved her, wouldn't necessarily stop them from killing her. Yeah, like they don't, they don't, they're too chaotic for that. Like they don't have yeah. the rationale, it, you, I guess. You can put the emotion in them, but you don't know exactly what that emotion is going to do. Mm-hmm. Like even if she just fills them with apathy, right? I mean, Jack needs a single swish of his knife to kill you. Yeah. And you might just do that out of boredom, so. Yeah, that seems like there's, that's like even even her own sort of like explanation you know, is is that she's like, oh, there's this idle boredom. Um, but do you wonder why she didn't, like, brute force them beforehand, you know? Like... What do you mean? I mean, I, I guess I understand she approached them as a group originally, but she brute forces that soldier, right, into being completely mm, obedient yeah, to her. Yeah. And I'm just wondering why... Why she didn't I, I guess she's, she's not fast enough to, to do it on a whole, you know, eight people at the same time. Yeah. Or nine people, actually, because I think the nine was filled... Yeah, when oh yeah, because she had um, to... when she tried to join, yeah. Oh, but hmm, yeah, I don't know. Perhaps it's perhaps it's a limitation on her um her own powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm, don't know. All right, what's your next section on here? Oh yeah, and then I want to talk about also um after like after her plan has like been articulated by Tattletail and she's kind of like living with the nine, but then also like waiting for whatever's going to happen. Um. Mm-hmm. She's like she she's dealing with this with this anticipatory fear in addition to her sort of like cycles of of like you know making sure she doesn't die and she's kind of like she's stuck in this this waiting period again which she was stuck with that um before before she met up with the nine but after she had left um her family that she was kind of like in this like waiting for her family to come back and to like take her make her like force her to return and everything so she's kind of like stuck in that headspace again, mm-hmm. um, but this time she doesn't wait. She doesn't wait, um, and then she she readily she readily gives up her autonomy um, to Coil and to the to the undersiders and everything, so that she she constructs a way out of her liminality that um, uh, in a in a way that perhaps guarant- um, that doesn't guarantee death. You know what I mean? Like with the nine and with her family, there is that almost certainty she could be killed but then if she turns herself over to like coil and the undersiders and everyone that she it's a it's really uncertain point and they do debate killing her mm-hmm. but they're all unsure yeah there's there's not as much like like a, a guarantee of of dying yeah or of like completely losing bodily autonomy in the way that she did the previous two situations mm-hmm. um yeah but then she's still sort of like stuck in the way that she like manages her own fear which is to like mm-hmm. externalize onto other people um yeah she's almost she's almost like um like an uh like a extension of tattletale of like yeah they, they have the same kind of behavior where like they the more the, the the more uh scared and unsure they are the more they deflect with humor and needling other people they both do mm-hmm. the same thing but she's sort of like um i feel it could be important i don't know I find something interesting here, uh, reflecting on how she kind of continually double crosses everyone in in this particular section, right? So she's with the nine and uh, eventually makes a deal with Imp, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, then gets taken to uh, taken into Coil's custody and is sort of cooperating, but sort of on the nine side. It, it finally, like ending on 
cooperating, and then once the miasma hits, she flips to the other side and says, t- tells them where she is, and because she knows who they it are, gives still, them a clue. Right? Hmm? She knows who they are still. Oh yeah, because it it wasn't able to affect her. Yeah, because she's under the the ocean. Yeah. yeah, or no, she was in a buoy, I think. Regardless, uh, the, she's like she, she was on the ocean, and the uh, parasite doesn't go into the salt water. Mm. But yeah, so she she continually does this thing where she just like gets herself in a worse and worse situation, right? Or she starts getting a decent situation when she makes a deal and gets captured, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, okay, l- l- let me take a step back. So she makes a deal with Imp. But that doesn't actually go through because she's captured before then. And and when that's happening, right, uh, Ballistic is going to, like, execute her. And she, like, manipulates his emotions, even though, like, no one else notices. Mm, yeah, yeah. It, he's like, oh, she looks like a girl I knew. And it's it's kind of obvious, like, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, she doesn't. Um, and uh, so she, but she still, like, uh, gets shot, I think. Um, she just, just doesn't die. Oh, yeah, die. she does, yes. And yeah. she gets, but does she, she also, she gets bitten? I think so, by a bunch of spiders and such. Mm-hmm. Same thing as Shatterbird, I think. But yeah, so she gets into Cole's custody and like, they are helping her, right? So like, she could do something to, to, to get more help, but, but no, she continually like antagonizes them. Coil kick, or Skitter kicks her in the face. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, she, she puts herself back into the Nine's hands at the end for, for what? <laughs> I don't even know why. I, I, yeah, I don't know why like, she like what she was she expecting them to come and I, help her. I assume that like they were going to find her. She she probably thought they were going to find her no matter what. So she might as well tell them and then give them that extra information. You know that Jack is going to end the world yeah. as a little gift. But of course, that's not enough for the nine. They don't reward loyalty. Yeah, it's also it's fascinating that she if if that is like the motivation of her choice to like share that information. Maybe it's she like just a, wants to be in control. It's a display of, of loyalty. Because mm-hmm. it's like, where would she have cultivated that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then, like, I, I mean, I guess it does sort of, like, reinforce the concept of, like, knowledge as control and, like, knowledge as power. But I don't know. She just kind of, I don't know. She never really fully has control of herself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Hmm. But, huh, I don't know. But then it's, I don't know. I, well, I was thinking about this, too, of, like... We can't, I mean, she didn't have a, a good environment as a child to grow up in, but even after she leaves it, she's still sort of, like, stuck in that, that, like, mentality, mm-hmm. um, and, like, that behavior that she doesn't, she doesn't really stop. Yeah. So it's, I don't know. There's, there's a repeated, you know, theme, not theme here, but just a notion of people not believing that they can, people starting out in situations that they can't control doing bad things and then being outside of the law so that they can never re-enter normal society even if they do get better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's with Burnscar, that's with Cherish. They both think, well, I've done all these bad things. There's no way they're not going yeah, no to... They're, they're going to let me go. So I might as well live free and even if I'm continually doing bad things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and both of them, both Burnscar and Cherish, don't... They, they're the least of the nine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have a I have a tier list. I think I think I might have mentioned the last episode, yeah, so like I'm, I'm reluctant to run through it again. Yeah, but yeah, with uh, Cherish and, and Burn Scar for sure are on the bottom of that list. Yeah, mm. Shatterbird also feels like she doesn't quite belong, even though she does. 
It's like she Jack causes, and, she and Bonesaw a lot of destruction. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. And death. Well, that that's that's the thing that brings her in, but her motivations are not like chaotic. Yeah. Yeah. Jack slash uh, Jack Bonesaw Crawler and Siberian are all like chaos for chaos's sake. Yes. Right. Their, their motivations yes. are violence specifically because violence is an inherent good mm-hmm. where Shatterbird is more of like a I don't know honor kind of thing or she just wants to be the best I guess something like that yeah and so and that's also sort of crawler's mentality too of like he's he engages in so much in order to like mm-hmm. be better than himself yeah you know mm. yeah it, um and mannequin I forgot uh but mannequin, mannequin has like a goal. Not for, yeah, he's not for chaos, but he's for specifically hurting people, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. He has like a vendetta. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with Cherish? Um, I think that is it. But I mean, I'll have more to say um, when I get talking about um, the essay portion. All right. Uh, well, before we get into your essay, let's do our little, well, our first of our three little bits let's talk about some favorite moments that we missed uh we won't always repeat our bits but i, I feel like this is probably a pretty good one to yeah. return to especially because like we we skip over so much mm-hmm. it's nice that we can like especially this time oh my gosh yeah. so what like, were some of your favorite moments clarence mm-hmm. my favorite um is the breakfast that i <laughs> was very enthusiastic about before but... yeah you mentioned it a bunch of times and then like the, I, there was not a moment to just yeah, talk I about mean, it, it wasn't specifically really, like, to explore. That influential in the plot. And it was really mm-hmm. even just kind of a background to what was happening. You know, because like, it's 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 sort of like the after moment of, of the tense conversation between Brian and Taylor and then Taylor and and um, Aisha. Rachel. No. Or oh, yeah. Aisha, yeah. yeah. All three of them first and then, and then Taylor and Rachel. But like... It's just this sort of, like, background where she's just kind of, like, cooking away, making their food, you know? And then, like, the travelers show up and they're eating breakfast and it's just this whole thing. And it seems mm-hmm. nice. But Even while... Yeah, I mean, even... I mean, there's yeah, tenseness even, even and all of this and all this mess, all this interpersonal mess. But, like, they're all eating breakfast together. And it just seemed mm-hmm. like a, a nice moment to sort of stop and reflect, drink coffee, eat eggs. Mm-hmm. For the... For... Yeah, one of the few times you can throughout yeah. the well, three like, days of chaos. Th- yeah, they don't really, like, think about... Oh my god, yeah, when do they eat? Th- yeah, there's so much... There's when so does much, Taylor eat? Like, <laughs> detail of everything else, and she thinks about so much. Like, I would... I would, f- I feel like she would carry around granola bars, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Talking... Uh, thinking about eating in a war zone is just a... Such a terrifying concept. Yeah. Like, w- what a strange way to feel vulnerable. It's just food. Yeah. Speaking of food, uh, you should catch up on Pale. It's pretty good. Is it about um, food? Uh, one particular section is. Oh. Uh, so the next uh, so special moment that I have, um, just I just want to mention how Hookwolf's power makes him move. Mm-hmm. There's just something. I actually think about this a lot. It just it just comes into my mind a lot. I don't know why, but the whole idea of how he takes the shape of a wolf, right? But he doesn't actually move the legs. The legs just extend and retreat that's so odd in a way that looks like he's moving yeah they just like continually extend from his center to to go down and back mm-hmm. and that pushes him forward repeatedly and he maintains that shape of the wolf 
I don't know. There's just something really interesting about that. That's such an odd way to move. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to move that way. No, he doesn't. Right? That's Chatterbird's point. You, well, that's the other thing is that like he doesn't have to move that way. But that way is so much more interesting than what would probably be the objectively best way, which is just to be like a ball of hooks and spikes mm-hmm. and just roll forward. That, that would be the fastest way to move, but it but would be like, far oh, less interesting than forming a wolf. Yeah. So strange. I don't know. There's so many, like, movement-oriented discussions of, mm-hmm. you know, because, like, when you think about, yeah. like, Shadowstalker and, and I feel like a whole section of, like, Fletchette's um, interlude was, was contemplating, mm-hmm. like, and discussing how to move and, and the logistics yeah. of it and not knowing the city so it's more difficult and tedious and all of this mm-hmm. yeah i don't know it just it makes you so much more aware of like the the landscape yes yes yeah um it, on on movement I, it's something that's easy to miss is that shatterbird's flight is not normal flight mm. she's from all the glass shards she presses against her own body and she lifts those up and that lets her move oh, oh she has that dress made of oh like, yeah yeah scintillating colored glass shards yeah dang huh. there's it's just such there's so many good visuals in this mm-hmm. you know mm. yes yes well another another um scene that i really liked um that we didn't get to touch on before was in the aftermath of um in like the sort of solving part of the miasma with all those mm-hmm. like misfolded proteins and everything um taylor's like walking around with the cure um, in her saliva and so she yeah. she walks up to bitch and you know gives her a peck on the lips and is like you're cured <laughs> and then bitch punches her right yes right after ah, yes. wonderful wonderful scene that's that's yes. such a hilarious moment it's such a great moment of of lev- levity and tension release yeah, after yeah uh, the nine that was just because you arrive there and like it's already kind of tense, but Tattletail is there, so it, like like you know it, there's the tension of the miasma, mm-hmm. but Tattletail's there, who kind she kind of knows what's going on, and yeah, then you have some some kisses and comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's great. It was a great scene. Delightful. Um, yes. So uh, another little moment we didn't talk about it much, but um, Theo's lines in in his interlude, right? Um, uh, there's just a lot of good ones i remember a lot um but stuff like she doesn't love me but she likes me mm-hmm. which is just just a lot with with so much in there right uh, so much background in there he's like he knows mm-hmm. and it's something that purity is kind of in denial of but he yeah he's a no he knows it and he kind of accepts it and it's yeah which is so and sad. then yeah it's very yeah and then uh him staring into Jack's eyes saying, "People like you, sir, I'd kill." Ah. Which is such a wonderful moment of bravery on his part. Yes, I'm. I hope. I feel like he's going to come back, and we'll see more of him. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when we do, I'm very excited. Yes, because I feel like he yes. has great potential. Yeah, hoping he becomes a badass after after his two years. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, that's the favorite moments we had uh, there was I, I was trying to think of more and there's for sure a lot more and i just couldn't think of them because it's three hundred fifty thousand words and it was hard to sift, sift through it all but yeah yeah um, it's so hard to like i had so many things i wanted to pull from and i feel like i couldn't find mm-hmm. them all well i mean just to mention it real quick flechette's movement again it's just 
really fun. Mm -hmm. I, I really wish we could see it. When she's describing it, it feels like really chunky and stuff. But like I got kind of frustrated actually reading it because it's like this should feel so natural. Like you can imagine how it would feel if she all the 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 skyline was all even mm -hmm. and she could go from rooftop to rooftop sliding down that chain. Yeah, yeah. It just feels super satisfying, you know? Like like you know how Spider-Man just feels like right <laughs> his movement, you know? It hurts us too. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Just like her with the chain and sliding down, it's like the ultimate parkour. Mm, yeah. Free free movement. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, let's let's get into the explorations, the things that we keep accidentally calling essays, but they're more like explorations. Yes. So I think you're first, Clarence. Okay, I am first. Okay, okay. So, um, so my the the main concept that I'm going to explore is is this sort of constructed authority that's really present, especially within um this particular arc. This kind of like power over others. That's that's an inter an interpersonal manifestation of power, um, that in the in the couple in the like few people that I explored was uh, rooted in their rhetoric and like um, control over like materiality, um, and then you want to define materiality real quick. Yes. Okay. So, um, in this context, I'm I'm going to be discussing. Um, it's really just like about like the like physical body. Um, and sort of, and, well, I guess it's, it's both about the physical body, but then also about, like, material needs, um, both, like, of the body and of, of, like, like, the living space and, and, um, um, like, conditions, material conditions sort of thing. Yeah, so this is, like, the physical reality that kind of affects someone's mind? Yes, yes. And how they'll act, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it's also, um, particularly important to note that, um, each of the individuals that I look at, in addition to whatever they're using of, like, control over materiality, control over, like, um, like the mind, the body, or, like, the conditions, or um, using, like, language to kind of influence that, all of them additionally use violence. Yeah. Um, or the, in conjunction. Yeah, in conjunction with it. Um, or, like, turns into violence. Um, and then... So with so the individuals that I'll be looking at are Jack and Jack slash Taylor, um, Cherish Regent and Coil and maybe maybe Pico if we if I want to fit it in. Um, but so the the way that it's kind of like parsed out is is uh, Jack and Taylor have a much more like um, language based um, entryway into into sort of like exerting power over others. Um, and the way that I started, uh, sort of thought about it was, um, this, like, interpersonal level of, um, Althusser's, like, concept of interpolation, mm -hmm. um, which can also be, uh, phrased, uh, as, like, hailing or, like, you know, the recognition of someone's identity and, like, reading of that identity. Um, yeah. and so, like, by, by recognizing that individual, um, sort of you know, prompting them to action. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in the more, like, ideological sense, you know, in, in the more, like, theory sense, it's, it's, um, interpolation is, is more tied to, like, the, like, state and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, individual of the state recognizing, um, um, you know, kind of interpolating an individual and 
by by that recognition turning them into like a subject um, right althusser is, is writing from a marxist yeah, perspective yeah he's right? kind so of like he's a kind of a, like a late 20th century marxist um mm-hmm. who was born and he's in algeria i think um but he did a lot of writing like in in france and everything was he too I so was so. derrida I, yeah I well you know <laughs> um those french oh my gosh yeah. Mm. yeah but so he kind of like he he sort of reoriented um the the kind of discourse i guess the like marxist discourse um onto mm-hmm. the concept of ideology and and how much that sort of shaped um the like social structures and like people's behaviors and and like the material actions and material behaviors um yeah yeah and the way that he he sort of like saw this the state is like interacting with with the individuals was by that was by like recognizing them as as subjects as as um themselves yeah so subjects as in like people that are subject to the power of whoever is supposed to have the power in in ideology mm-hmm. and also basically perpetuators of that ideology yeah, by, yeah. by acting within it um yes yeah, so but um the way that I was that I sort of applied it to um, Jack and Taylor's behavior, and like the way that they used the way they use rhetoric, and and the way that they use um, interpersonal interaction and communication, um, the the way that they sort of like build a rapport, I suppose you could say, um, mm-hmm. with like the subject of their attention. Um, it's it's not just about the recognition, but it's like the step after of like. Um, in the like the convincing and the poking and like needling right that's like of of pulling out that like specific piece of whoever's identity that they like that they see that speci- uh, particularly mm-hmm. we see a lot with jack of like the keystone that he mentioned is that right um so it's it's not only the the part to manipulate they're also identifying the parts that they want to use mm-hmm. too yeah yeah um which for both i think is not just their power it's also like the way that they use it, the way that they think about it. It's, it. That's even more so with Jack, who's more interested in, like, what their dynamic will add to, or what how they will add to the dynamic of the nine that he already has. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they both, um, yeah, so he, with him, he's, like, specifically looking about how to sort of, like, pull someone apart and, like, how to, like, break them into what he wants them to be. Mm. Um, whereas, like, with Taylor... She also, she doesn't always, she doesn't acknowledge that she's doing this, which I think yeah. is a huge difference between her and Jack and, and because he's like intentionally sort of, um, manipulating where she, she is, is unconsciously intentionally, um, manipulating yeah. others to, she thinks like so often, so, so many times she's like, oh, I don't even know what to say or like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, all of this. And then she says exactly what needs to be said for them to do whatever it is. Um, yeah. And she she does it in in the sense of prompting them to immediate action, um, rather than like a always being like psychological terror or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because they so they both know how to sort of like speak to whatever it is that that needs to be you know identified. Um, yeah. So just to take a step back and identify interpolation and stuff a little bit more in Haley mm-hmm. um, as, as we go forward thinking about this. So um, from what I remember reading of the, the, the stuff you were showing me, interpolation and uh, identifying subjects, right? The, the hailing mm-hmm. 
the example usually uses with a police officer going to a citizen, hey, you, and by that, uh, just just the notion of who is speaking and how they're saying it, that civilian becomes a, a different kind of subject. subject. They become yeah. someone who needs to follow the law. And so when you turn and, and answer them, you are now immediately part, uh, you are subject to the ideology and uh, you can't really escape from that notion just by even by even if you don't think that you believe it whatever the ideology is yeah if you are participating in it you are a subject and there's also you mentioned before like that there is no outside of it because mm-hmm. even if you do not align with that ideology you are still stuck in that like dialectic of like you know uh, this is how you're per- perceived yeah like you you shape your beliefs even around that even if you don't believe it you're saying i I don't believe this, so I believe this. You know, it's like, but it's still kind of like oriented around that ideology. Yeah, uh, Judith Butler um, was talked about this as well in, in in her own. She's a feminist um, writer, and uh, how people are interpolated at birth when they are hailed as it's a boy or girl mm-hmm. or whatever, yeah, yeah. and suddenly you are now subject to so many assumptions and. Um, roles that you're now supposed to fit into just by the way that you were hailed that which you had no control over yeah yeah Yeah, there's the phrase of like always already a subject you know where it's like Mm -hmm. our identity is has been placed and categorized even before we like existed because those like all those structures like already exist and we were born into them yeah you can't escape society (laughs) even if you go into the woods yeah yeah because then you are in not society you know yeah uh languages but Back to Worm. Anyways, yes, back to Worm. Um, yeah, so both of them both of them get very wrapped up in being able to kind of, you know, maneuver around each individual's, like, identity and their self, their sense of self, and, right. and what makes them act in particular ways and, and um, like, what motivates them. Um, where, uh, and I, I pulled specifically, this is this is a little bit, like, this much later, this is um, in the high school, um, where Jack like immediately recognizes that he needs to talk about um Marquis Marquis um uh, Marquis or Marquis Marquis there we go okay um Amy's father he he recognizes that he yeah. needs to talk Amy's about father. Amy's father let's just call him Amy's father um cuz he like by setting up that that dynamic she immediately starts thinking about the way that she functions and the way like the rules that she has established and and the limitations and how she's already broken them and all of this like he's he's already like kind of pulling them um apart just by mentioning that sort of like yeah attachment um yeah just by that identification there's the assumption you are already doomed yeah um but then his like next step is to be like you know what does it matter like that like you'll be free after this and but then free from like those rules where whereas like uh, Taylor and she she approaches from the same perspective, um, but then she like takes a different tact of of pulling at like the guilt that that Amy has like internalized and kind of like you know placed upon herself. And then he also he also points out specifically Jack does to Amy um, where he's like I suspect you've never been around someone who actually paid attention to you right so he's like acknowledging that that possibility of of her not being identified, like, you know, seen in the way that she wants to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Um, but then she totally like derails that because she's like Tattletail did and Skitter, right? So it's like the the like the noticing, like the acknowledging of of um what Taylor did before. She's set herself up. Taylor has set herself up so that she has that entryway into into like the negotiation with Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, so 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 that she can like make her demands or whatever. Um, and then like immediately sort of like throws her under the bus where she's like you have to sacrifice you have to sacrifice yourself um Mm -hmm. and then you know so she 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 sets up the same choice but with totally different reasons um because she sees it the first time like it almost works she just knows that she has to like tweak it a little bit you're saying taylor tweaks her approach a little bit to affect amy better Mm -hmm. as in the approach from before was both times telling Amy to drop her rules to do a thing, right? Yes. To, um, you know, help her, help them fight the nine better, but also fix Victoria. Mm-hmm. And so she refines her approach um, this time to make Amy break her rules again. Yeah. Um, to save everyone. Yeah, it, like it's she 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 appeals to a different um, piece of of um, Amy than than what Jack mm-hmm. did. Whereas Jack's is, Jack appeals to the, 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 like, that piece of her that, like, wants to stop having to mm-hmm. police herself and, like, impose these things yeah. upon herself. Wants to go burn Scar. Yeah. Um, but then Taylor's like, you have to, like, you have to acknowledge all of this. Um, and the only way to do that is, is to stop um, using your rules. Mm-hmm. Is to, like, is to deal with it. Yeah. Because she's so much more, like, she's so much more, like, action-based or, like, use-based, I guess. I don't want to say utilitarian, Ta- but like she, Taylor, I think is is bordering on utilitarian. Yeah, like she's just she's just she's so very definitely practical. influenced by that. But yeah, um, I mean, she would certainly view herself that way. Yeah, but in order to reach that, she's like very manipulative. Right. Yeah. Miss telling the girl with the ball of fire that doesn't want to kill people to kill people with her ball of yeah, fire. Goodness gracious. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, but so so both Jack and Jack and Taylor like they spur others to action like specifically by their words like through their rhetoric um but then in this sort of like they they both of them kind of they're dangerous in the sense that they they manufacture or they sort of like graft the ability to like the the subject to break themselves instead Mm -hmm. of instead of like where regent and cherish you know take like physical control and like exact physical violence or like psychological violence directly onto the subject yeah um jack and taylor just sort of like almost almost like graft the intention on to the subject themselves where they're the one that Mm -hmm. has to do it yeah uh i I think a really good example of this is with um rachel right Mm -hmm. i mean this is a a example of kind of positive motivation right yeah that's true that's true i'm making this out to for taylor like all of this like quite you know i mean Manipulation can be positive, yeah. right? I guess that's that's a whole debate we can have. Yeah. But um, you know, Rachel betrays Taylor, right? Uh, throwing her into dragon's goo, mm-hmm. and afterwards, uh, Taylor, you know, beats her up a little bit. But her, she emphasizes basically, you should feel embarrassed and you should feel bad for um, being weak and stuff like that. And then we see kind of in in. Rachel's interview, she's kind of has internalized that, that she, she, it, she does hate that moment of betrayal and disloyalty because she became what she hated. Yeah. Yeah. And 
that kind of almost not a, not a reverse psychology, but like a from that seed of the idea, she eventually comes around to trying harder with Taylor yeah. because Taylor because Taylor sets is, it up so that she yeah she must sort of like you know grapple with that herself of mm-hmm. of like she's like she's forced to think about you know like why does why does Taylor like keep returning you know like why why did she take the time to like think through how how Rachel needs to interact you know like where she she meets her where she is instead of like forcing her to kind of like you know adapt to the situation mm-hmm. and learn the nuances she like Taylor sees she reads her audience um and responds in kind multiple different times and based on like different situations like because she she doesn't she she's not always like quite as like like violent and direct but she's always yeah. she's always attentive to the way that rachel needs to be spoken to yeah yeah um but she does that like for a lot of different people um like with the travelers and everything but before the um before they go and the whole debacle with like grew and everything where she's like cataloging everything thinking mm-hmm. about how she will interact with them and how she will like how that'll affect like the usefulness of the entirety of both of their groups of like the interpersonal stuff she learns from cherish and what she's kind of like gathered along the way yeah um in the moment she's not she's not thinking about like what it means for them she's thinking about what it means for her mm-hmm. and like how she's going to respond to it um yeah yeah, not really specifically. The, the the way she thinks about a lot of people is not necessarily like, hey, how must this feel for you specifically? Mm-hmm. It's through the lens of how must this how must this feel for you, and then what what must I do in response to that? How how can I use your emotions? Yeah, um, yeah, to better deal with you. Not so not not focusing as much on the empathy part and feeling bad about it, right? On the or, or sympathy, I guess, but on the. What what are, the, what are the practical realities of the way that you act and the trauma that you faced? Yeah, I, which I think that's why the conversation between her and Brian like goes so terribly. Um, <laughs> yeah, with like thirteen ten, where yeah. he's like, "Oh, you're saying you're not being manipulative, like that you you have all of this that was pure motive, like your undercover operation, you know, but you throw yourself in these situations or you join in, you know, to like whatever fucked up plan the others come up with all of this, and then." He's like, you're making us dependent upon you, you know? And then she, mm-hmm. she's, he, he's like, you know, who, who are we supposed to blame besides you? Uh, what, like with his situation where, and then she like sort of acknowledges it, but then at the same time, she's, she's still manipulating like his response because she's saying uh, her response to like his accusation is, is I'll own up to it. Like, you know, it's my fault. All this, like the blame is at least partially mine. And then she goes down this whole list of everybody who's suffered from her actions. And at the very end, mm-hmm. she's like, I can leave the team if you want. You know, give me the word and I'll leave. It's so guilt trippy. It's yeah. so guilt trippy. And it's, it, and it's kind of, uh, you know, in arc six, mm-hmm. uh, Brian says that he views her or views her like a little sister, yeah. right? Like a sister. And we know how much he wants to protect his sister. Mm-hmm. And so she's, you know, manipulating that part where he wants to protect her. Yeah. It's, it's just, it, it like I know she doesn't. She doesn't necessarily. Maybe she. I, I don't know. Maybe it's that she just hasn't admitted admitted it to herself. Like how much she she really like pulls along like upon others like um, responses. Mm-hmm. But it's just she does it so often. Um, yeah. 
but then so when we start thinking about um beyond like the the rhetoric of um taylor and and jack there's this sort of like more like immediate response of regent and cherish who Mm -hmm. there's their kind of like authority over another's individual or another's another's body like another individual's body um is so much more like material and and coil i think is also sort of like attached to this this idea of like materiality which his is like a little bit different because he creates dependencies that are like you know object based or like um Mm -hmm. it's it's an in-between where it's he is influencing the mental right Mm -hmm. like jack and and skitter but using material and physical needs and and desires yeah and if they if they if he doesn't have one then he creates one like with Dinah. right he like creates all these dependencies um but then like with the other two with the siblings they kind of they 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 physically and impose their their power like it's in order for them to be like fully in control it has to be totalitizing Mm-hmm. Um, or like totalizing but it's not um like where where even i mean we see when when they're interacting with each other where it's like they don't have power over the other or like when when individuals um like fight back against against their control um i i would say it's i mean it's not it's not that it's not harmful but it's it's less dangerous i think than the power that that taylor and and jack have yeah i mean panacea's you know the the thing she does is so horrifying mm-hmm. because it affects the mind yeah yeah it it's a, a change to your being in a way that body control or even emotional manipulation that's that's short term like that doesn't quite reach yeah. yeah they're kind of so it's definitely i mean they're it's not that they're they don't you know they're that you know like the that they're kind of like breaking of these like intimacy taboos of like over the bodily autonomy or like mind or that sort of thing it's not that that's not terrible it's just the the kind of like docility i guess that comes from that mm-hmm. isn't isn't as as like devastating i think than than being almost being kind of convinced to do something at like but it feels like your own volition yeah you know yeah um yeah if if regent uh, was a member of the nine and made panacea you know uh, go do horrible things it would be not as bad as if jack convinced panacea to start doing horrible things yeah yeah because then like there's a there's a level of like responsibility that the individual has to take um when they are convinced yeah. um but yeah because the intentionality of of um jack he sort of he sets it up so he can just sort of watch every time. Like, it's his his whole chaos, I think. It's interesting, too, because his chaos isn't necessarily immediate. He just sort of, like, sets up things to fall apart. Yes. Um, which is which I think is almost almost a, a foil to Taylor because she sets up things to, like, keep them together. Like, yeah. she's constantly Or at thinking. least she tries to. Yeah, yeah, she tries to. It's not always... She, she's not always successful, but... She's always trying to sort of like fit everything into this sort of like linear puzzle. Um, I don't know. She she her mind seems like Tetris to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where she's well, she's always like thinking about how everything's going to fit together and like mm. how she's yeah, going true. to make it fit. Yeah. Um. You know, like even where she's like when when she's asserting like her power. Um. 
and 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 not really her power, I suppose, but like her authority in in her like territory and um, with her like minions, I guess, mm-hmm. is that she she kind of like she reads the audience of knowing like knowing they need someone with like a she they know she knows that they don't need a fifteen year old girl to tell them what to do. So she like mm-hmm. sets up herself as this like intimidating villain. Um, yeah. Where like even it was interesting. Not only a villain, but like an inhuman yeah, one. An inhuman one, that one is formed of bugs. Mm-hmm. And she's and I think that's why she's so dramatic and and why she has all these like extra things that she does. That I mean, it's also mm-hmm. just her being dramatic, but <laughs> she she sets up the image for them to see. Um, yeah. 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 There's this notion of I I don't know which person it is but it could be Althusser it could be Foucault it could be another uh, Marxist uh, an Italian Marxist named Antonio Gramsci but talking about they, they probably all talk about it but uh, how the state has you know a, a, they didn't talk about this specifically but the state has a monopoly on violence mm-hmm. violence right and so you can order bodies right physical bodies people yeah. to do things and obey through two kinds of power, right? You've got threat of physical violence, which, um, you know, a police state will do that. And it, states will, will use both of these powers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other is um, the power of ideology, right? To make mm-hmm. you, they, they put it in your mind to, to do it yourself, right? And so these people that you're pulling out, Taylor and Jack, are more of that, that social power, making people want to do it more, while Regent and Cherish are more of that physical, violent, coercive power. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's that's definitely absolutely the difference. Um, and I I think looking at it, it seems that while the the violent power is more total, right? Like mm-hmm. much more specific, controlling the very specific actions. It is much more tenuous and easier to lose. Yeah. Uh, as as soon as that um, control is lost, you know, if Regent loses control of Shadowbird, she can turn around and, you know, slice, slice his throat open. Yeah, it's uh, this kind of, like, the, and, the requirement of, like, constant, you know, um, like, reinforcement of it, I think. Yeah. Um, Once it starts, it can't stop. Yeah, yeah. Which is difficult, because, like, power can never be totalitizing. Um, there's always yeah. resistance. Which I think that's why the the rhetoric that, and, like, the... the I, I guess, I keep saying rhetoric, but it's more of, like, the rhetorical arguments that they keep making. Jack and Taylor. Mm-hmm. Um and these sort of like convincing, you know, persuasive, you know, speeches and everything um, that that creates it it places the the motive or the intention um, on the self on their on their subject so that it seems like they're not being told what to do so it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like the power is totalitizing it's yeah. just something that seems to be uh, you know internalized Natural yeah and naturalized good. yeah ah naturalization <laughs> what a concept that one is yeah. Yeah. Well, it's just no, nah, no. That's that's a whole nother thing. That, that's a tangent. <laughs> we'll that's be a, here that's for like an for hour and a half. Day. Another day. Yes. 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 Um. Yes. <laughs> Did you have other directions you wanted to go to? I feel like there was something else that I wanted to bring up. Well, I also perhaps if we wanted to bring up also, um, Coil in in this sort of like in between state, um, mm-hmm. where he he doesn't he doesn't place the the like you know action on the subject but he also doesn't force them to do what he wants them to do um mm-hmm. sometimes he sets himself up in opposition or he like gives placation or this sort of thing um like with taylor he i, I for both he does both of them i i would say where like in the villain meeting he sets it up 
uh, where he kind of forces her to act um, because he doesn't, or because he doesn't acknowledge her, um, the Undersiders and the Travelers. So they kind of have to like do their own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then earlier, I think, is when, when she sort of like goes up and speaks to him about Dinah. And he really only agrees in this sort of, you know, placating moment. Because um, he's he's not really, like, he he isn't thinking about what they can all, like, the benefit of using them, like, for long-term purposes. He's just, he's setting up a, butt of, a bunch of, like, expendable individuals. Or he's, mm-hmm. like, making them expendable by creating, like, this dependency upon him. But, yeah. Yeah, because then he gets to choose their value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, cause cause all of his like, all of his like um like material aspects, not the not the like rhetoric of it, but the the material is, is both like material for himself, but then also are like conditions and also like body oriented. Um, but it all goes back to like little pieces where he like mm-hmm. where he like gives a little instruction or like a little information. It's not about you know. they 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 each like take the sort of like step by step so it's like even more controlled i would say um because they're not the ones like that are taking the actions Mm -hmm. i don't know he's he's sort of in the like in between yeah i think so too yeah but Hmm. i don't know all of this to say um there's a there's a multiple different like methods i think of control that are demonstrated here um and i think the the most concerning i think is the parallel between jack and Taylor. And Taylor, I mean, she's not intentionally, like, many believe she's not intentionally, like, cruel or anything. Well, I I think intention is such a complicated word. Yeah. Because I think it is, there is, you know, she, she is trying to do this. I think it's just unconscious. Yeah. She wouldn't, she wouldn't necessarily say that it is, but she does, yeah. she does think about the actions of, if I say this, they will do this. Yeah. Unconsciously intentional is what yeah. I would. Yeah, yeah end up calling it yeah i don't know because both of both all of them sort of like lead down um in addition to like the language of it they have this like added addition of violence and like the threat of violence Mm -hmm. so their rule is is i mean even if it is like with her and her territory like she's established this kind of like i'll give you stuff if you like i'll keep you safe all of this Mm -hmm. but there's like still that like you know element of unspoken yeah, um, there's the there's the threat that like she she's not specifically trying to evoke. She's not specifically trying to evoke I'm going to hurt you if you don't obey mm-hmm. me other than, you know, if you, you know, are hurting people, yeah, you know, she, like, has or, a whole doing list crime, and right? She's like if you're doing crime, I will hurt you, but I don't I don't think I don't know how aware she is of the feeling it is to every other civilian that like she'll hurt them if they don't obey her yeah. too. Well, because the first scene that she has, like, when she steps out of the bugs and everything, and she's, like, you know, announcing all of these rules and setting it up, um, she she does have this sort of, like, back and forth with, like, a merchant, I think. Um, yeah. Which, like, gets really violent, which is, like, you know, is this sort of, like, spectacle of violence um, that, I mean, it isn't, it, he, the merchant isn't, isn't a civilian, but there is that, like... He is an individual that was in the crowd. He he is a um, uh, rebel, mm-hmm. and you know anyone else is thinking of rebelling as well. Looks at that and sees what sees what happened. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know, her her kind of like evolving, you know, dem- demonstrative powers, I think, are something to watch. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Anything else on this exploration you want to talk um, about? I think that's it for now. Okay. And I'm sure we'll return to this after a bit. Uh, you know, th- something that I think you, you and me are both realizing is how it's kind of hard t- to have so many unique theorists because we're going to go through 12 um, mm-hmm. explorations. So we're going to necessarily kind of cover the same kind of people sometimes. So yes, uh, I yes. mean, we'll always, you know, try to talk about a different topic at the very least, but it's kind of inevitable that we'll revisit the same people a couple of times. Very true. Especially because, like, a lot of theorists talk about a lot of different concepts. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like you may be talking about the same theorist, but it, it could be, like, a totally different aspect. And they yeah. also do – there's so much overlapping because they, they talk to each other oh, yeah. and, like, they write about – like, you know, they're, they're in dialogue of, like, the past and then, like, their contemporaries. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, one, one person will, will write about, you know, Marx, who's been dead for, you know, 60 mm-hmm. years, and then someone's going to write about – uh, not not about Marx, but write about that other person's response to Marx. Yeah, yeah. And so on and so on. Uh, gotta love academia. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, before we get into my uh, exploration, we're going to have our little interlude. Yes. Uh, with a little game I called, How Fucked Up Is That? So uh, <laughs> I love this, the title this is of a, this. A new bit. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're we're going to go uh, I have a, a couple of horrible mm-hmm. moments from these arcs, these seven arcs, and I will uh, give a quick uh, description of them. And I just need you, Clarence, to rate it on a five star scale of how fucked up is I'm that? Very ready. All right. Your entire family is modified with plastic surgery to look permanently like the most hated and feared individuals on the planet. How fucked up is that? Mm. Two out of five. Two out of five? <laughs> wow, we're setting the scale very wide here. We are. I guess you're giving room for all the rest. Uh, for uh, horrible moment number two, being turned into a murder rat. Hmm. How fucked up is that? Probably like a 3.5. Wow, we're going up a bit. Well, it's like... That's a whole I mean, before, star it's above. Like this, you know, it's like you're still a person, maybe, kind of. Mm-hmm. But then like murder rat, much worse. You know, now you're a rodent. <laughs> yeah, not only are you mixed with your someone, someone you hated, um, one way or another, you're also not in control of your body, yeah, which is terrifying. Point, why and is there even so a brain? There's so much that, why? that happened. Like, there's so many recurring moments yeah. of that, of like not being con- mm-hmm. in control of your body. Um, oh yeah, terrifying. Bonesaw loves making people not in control of their body. Oh, All right. Uh, uh, going to a party, getting drugged, and fighting in an arena that only ends when someone gains a power that deletes chunks of flesh out of existence, and then not even getting the power you promised when you got in it. How fucked up is that? Mm, I'm going to say about 3.75. Wow, so that's that's even higher. I actually would have expected that to go lower. But there was than, just than there was so much death that happened. It was so it was like, casual. Pretty horrible. Yeah. And by your, your fellow man, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, one of them, he's like... You didn't protect me, so like, mm, too bad. It was pretty. It was yeah. pretty. I, like when they first get in there, there's like two loners that back up together. They agree to work together, and as soon as oh, one turns his back, the other one clubs him over the head. Horrible. Yeah, can't trust no one. <sighs> All right. Uh, next up, we have a Siberian arm kebab. How fucked up is that? Hmm. I mean, are are the people still alive when they are like? I'm gonna say one is. She had two people impaled on her arm, hmm. and then she, like, casually tosses them aside. I'm going to assume that at least one is. 
then I'm going to say three. Three. Yes. So less than Murder Rat, less than Arena, but more than... More than being murder- modified by plastic surgery to look like one of the nine. Yes. You have a <laughs> interesting method of rating. I don't... It's, you know... All right, next we have being essentially crucified, your organs removed to be outside of your body, and additional nerves extending around the floor of a freezer that is slightly too warm, and then being forced to watch as your friends debate whether or not to off you before they are drugged one by one and their brains sawed in two. How fucked up is that? I'm going to say four. Four. Okay, now I, I can follow this, this yes. escalation yes. here. Oh, Brian. Pretty, that's, that's pretty horrible. It is pretty horrible. Like, I, I what do you think is the worst the, element like, of that? I feel like... The situ- like with hit like I feel like it's the exposed like nerves and body. Mm-hmm. Where you like I don't I don't know just the like medicine is a good thing you know but mm-hmm. hospitals and you know surgeries terrify me. Sure. And, like the concept of like waking up in the middle of a surgery is oh, something yeah. that without being able to control your body me. or tell anyone. Yeah. yeah. Well, I also like I really don't like that whole experience of like when you wake up but you're not fully woken up and your body still has that like that particular enzyme i don't know the sciencey term whatever sleep, you know where you're like paralysis you're stuck. is what you're talking yeah, about yeah yeah horrifying horrifying indeed i agree yeah and that's got to be like so much pain yeah yeah mm. oh oh man yeah. Uh, next up on, uh, on our list of horrible moments, we have Jack Slash pointing a knife at you and then saying the phrase, snicker snack, you and the baby die. How fucked up is that? Hmm. I just love the phrase snicker snack. I just needed a, a, a reason to say I really, it. It's so I good. Mean, uh, I have so much in the middle. I feel like it's like a 2.8. 2.8. You know, I'm, I might agree with it because it's at least at least you're dead. <laughs> I mean, snicker snack uh, is, is you know, rather quick, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like it. I feel like that's an implication. I mean, when Jack Slash says sticker snack, I feel like it's that's quick. But like, if Siberian yeah. spoke and said sticker snack, I feel like it would be a long time. <laughs> it would just be like you sitting there as as Siberian, like munched uh, through your body. Yeah, you know I mean? yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, that's in my head now. You're welcome. Jesus. For a last entry in this game, uh, your sister using her brain power on you to make you love her, getting splashed with a flesh-eating acid so she has to touch you to heal you, and then getting turned into a coffin of flesh made of dogs and cats with your brain still not fixed. Uh, How fucked up is that? I feel like that's about a 4.5. 4.5. So we haven't quite maxed out the scale. You're leaving a little room here for a, a future entry because, of course, this is an escalating story here. We're only 15 arcs in. 14 arcs in. So... About halfway-ish, not really. Oh. oh. Leaving room here. Yeah, I, I'm But 4.5 is, is the highest one on the scale here. Wait, say it again, sorry. So uh, a 4.5 is, is, is pretty fucked pretty fucked up here. It is. Pretty high it on the is. scale. Well, I mean, that's that's pretty, like, a lot to handle. That's a lot to handle. Mm-hmm. It is a lot to handle. However, I mean, if you're currently loving her, if you're in the moment, like, like you know, get in Victoria's brain for a second... It's probably not that bad. I guess. I mean, does she know that it's happening? Yeah, that's happened? the question, isn't it? Because I think that would change I don't know. the situation. It... If she doesn't know that she has been influenced and this just seems like her reality has always been this case, then I think that's still fucked up, but not it... quite as much as being it's aware even of it. More, I think it's even more fucked up from an outside perspective, yes. but from inside an inside perspective, perspective, it's less. less. Outside, much yes. worse. Yes. Uh, although I think... 
before she's turned into a blob, um, or before she's turned into a coffin, she is aware. But I think while the coffin thing is happening, I think she's like hypnotized. So Ooh. I think she's not like totally conscious okay. at this point. But still, like that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Ugh. Oh man. All right. Goodness. So uh, it looks like here Panacea wins. Uh, this round of how fucked up is <laughs> yeah. that? She did the most fucked up thing in these arcs. Oh, gosh. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Oof. So that's what we have for the segment. Mm. All right. Um, I guess let's go into Hurrah. mine. Derrida. So, Derrida. Okay. So, uh, this, this exploration, um, I was thinking a while how to do this. Mm-hmm. So, I want to talk about deconstruction, mostly because I think it's something that you can definitely keep an eye on. Uh, with Worm, and because a lot of people's understandings of deconstruction is not the, like, literary analysis, like, original theory version, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, it's totally valid because, you know, if you're talking with other people with the same, you know, definition in mind, you're still, you know, you're you're talking about this thing. But when we use it on this show, it's probably good to to know what it means. Um, The thing is, so deconstruction is a... If not post-structuralist, it's at like at the end of structuralism. Um, mm. And so you kind of have to know a bit about structuralism to really un- understand it fully. And um, so originally I thought, okay, so I'll make this segment about structuralism, except structuralism is like <laughs> so hard <laughs> to do. So I really did want to do it. So uh, my my goal here is I'm going to try to explain um, structuralism, the, the main key points here. And then get into Derrida and very quickly outline what you would do with it here. Um, and I feel like it's, it's a not, good one to just sort of like open up. And yeah, like, and it's it's just a really good, I think, example of like what kinds of stuff more of the post-structuralist stuff is is going yeah, into. Yeah, uh, Where it's more, a little bit more mind-bendy, a little bit more of a reality-warping kind of view of the world. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's, let's get into it and I'll explain as as we, we go. go so this is going to be like 70 percent lecture and then 30 percent talking about worm probably so uh before i can get to what deconstruction actually is i want to explain what's kind of the philosophy behind it and to get to that we have to talk about structuralism mm-hmm. so uh the invention of english criticism and in, in literary analysis is and is and has been an ongoing process the first time it became like really like a serious endeavor was uh, basically I think in the early 20th century or like 1920s something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were various groups of critics that are like trying to justify why there's an English department and kind of figure out why are we studying poetry? What what is the the point of this? And um, so I think I mentioned this already in the last perspectives episode, but that was um with the, the new critics and the, the formalists that basically, you know, come up with these concepts like looking specifically at the, at the text, not looking at, you know, biographies of the author, looking specifically what is inside the text and what is the text specifically trying yeah. to say. It was right? very, like, contained. The author, yeah. It was hmm? very contained. Very contained, yeah. So they were trying to make it more into a science, mm-hmm. right? But they still had a lot of room for, like, interpretation. They still did believe that there's interpretation in this. Uh, so they were trying to do it like a science. The structuralists, which which come, um, they start around the same time, but it grows as a movement up until like the 60s, where 
Derrida and other people come in to kind of really harshly criticize mm -hmm. it. Um, but it's even more of a science. So they're basing a lot of their findings on and a lot of their theories on Saussure, who is basically the founder of modern uh, linguistics and semiotics. <sighs> so let's let's real quick explain semiotics because that's semiotics. kind of the key point I'm, I'm getting to. Yes, it actually is a little bit of fun. So um, Saussure was basically trying to find out how we can actually scientifically talk about the systems behind language. So he basically divided language into, into two parts. Um, parole, which is talk, which is what people are actually saying. He's not interested in that at all. He, like what the actual things that people mean, he doesn't care mm. about that. He wants to talk about what he calls long, which is the system behind it. What the, the system that governs what we say at a given yeah, moment. Yeah. So each sign, which you can kind of think of a sign as a word and its meaning. So a sign is divided into two parts, the signifier, uh, which is like the sound or the, the text, mm -hmm. right? And the signified, which is the actual thing. So the signifier would be cat, right? Saying the word cat or the letter C-A-T, and the signified would be an actual cat. So, um, and you guys can probably already tell how difficult it is to talk about language within language because i'm just saying the same thing over and over again but i mean different things it's so hard um yeah so um yeah so so sure was basically uh his point is that language is basically a system of of signs and yeah, there's a couple important uh, notes here is that a sign uh, a signifier has no real connection to its signified mm -hmm. it's completely arbitrary there's no reason the sound cat should symbolize the animal a cat right rather than any other animal or any other object or any other concept in existence and so the, the question arises of where does meaning come from so so sure was talking about and emphasizing that uh meaning for a sign comes from what the sign isn't mm -hmm. so a cat means cat because the word cat is not mat, it's not bat, and it doesn't mean these things. So it comes from uh, the difference from other yeah. words. And it's like this not, socially produced mm -hmm. or like socially agreed upon sort of thing. Yeah, it's entirely socially like constructed. Mm -hmm. And the, the important here thing is here that there is no like specific place where the meaning arises. Yeah. It's all based off of negatives. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll, we'll get back to that idea of negatives and no center of meaning in a second it's just like everything <laughs> is a lot of empty vessels yes and and that's where the post-structuralists come in so we'll, we'll get to that in a second so uh but the structuralists you know take that and they're trying to use that as a science and looking at um language and writing as you know these signs and how they work together so a lot of structuralism is based off of um binaries and relationships where meaning is not from meaning does not come from what a word actually is and what is what or what a you know piece of literature is actually mm -hmm. saying literally meaning comes from the relationships between the concepts yeah. and kind of the, the the more primitive um simplification of those meanings so structures paid a lot of attention to form they're actually it's pretty useful if you're looking at a poem um it's a little bit more difficult when you're looking at entire story that's where you get into more uh narratology and that's where like joseph campbell's like 
hear of a thousand faces and the, you know looking at story structure mm-hmm. is yeah. yeah a structuralist thing um they place a lot of emphasis on archetypes that's where uh fry is it william isn't mm-hmm. it northrop yeah that sounds right <laughs> northrop fry uh talks about the like five types of stories right which are like comedy tragedy um and th- the others uh, <laughs> and basically yeah so basically all all structuralism um is about how we can simplify into like the deep structures behind a story and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and the actual content does not matter right so if we were to analyze worm using structuralism it wouldn't matter anything about superheroes it would matter what is where is the hero going are they going up or down are they uh becoming more heroic or less heroic are they um Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And it doesn't actually have to be out here. Yeah, we're like following the patterns to see how it fits into like the the rest, like the yeah previous so, established. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, every literary theory has kind of a different answer to the questions: What is the point of literature, and why are we analyzing it, and what are we trying to get mm-hmm. out of it? Structuralism: Its point is to reveal these deep structures to just get a better understanding of what those structures are and not necessarily get a, you know, specific theme out of it. It actually ignores all the literal themes. Um, a structuralist reading of Worm would not come up with any conclusion about um, bullying or what being a hero or villain means yeah, or anything yeah. like that. Um, that would not be the point. It very intentionally ignores those things. Where That's where it gets kind of really difficult to use and why I'm really reluctant to, to try to do it myself is it relies on you knowing a lot about all of the structures that exist, mm-hmm. right? All of these, uh, yeah, there's so much background other... knowledge that you have to have already mm-hmm. in place. Yeah. And they kind of, the structuralist kind of had this idea of the ideal reader that is completely unbiased and free from any ideology and also can identify yeah they had like they had all these like specific meanings set up like where you're like supposed to yeah i don't know it just it 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 doesn't really account for the audience i think yeah the ideal reader is is god essentially and you can't be perfect in that way um yeah so so to sum up um so from eagleton right eagleton um What's his first name? Terry. Oh, I keep forgetting. Yeah, Terry Eagleton's um, introduction to uh, literary criticism. I think it's actually the title's a little bit different, like that. It's like literary criticism and introduction. Yeah, I something think. Something like that. Anyway, um, so he he talks about structuralism, and here's a, a quick uh, summary of it. The new critics allowed that literature was, in some significant sense, cognitive, yielding a sort of knowledge of the world. Fry, a structuralist, insists that literature is an quote autonomous verbal structure, end quote, quite cut off from any reference beyond itself, a sealed and inward-looking realm which contains life and reality in a system of verbal relationships. All the system ever does is reshuffle its symbolic units in relation to each other, rather than in relation to any kind of reality outside it. Literature is not a way of knowing reality, but a kind of collective utopian dreaming which has gone on throughout history, an expression of those fundamental human desires which have given risen civilization itself, but which are never fully satisfied there. So that's another thing. Um, Structuralists specifically viewed literature as only influenced by other mm-hmm. literature, not re- influenced by reality. So, uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's the basic of, of, of structuralism. It's, it's pretty difficult to, to perform, and it also has a bunch of problems, so I'm not super interested yeah. in it. So uh, structuralism is 
based off of these relationships and specifically the the kind of relationship that is the the most important the most common is oppositional binaries and this is what we're going to talk a lot about so uh basically things are defined by what they're not right so that ends up being one thing is not another thing and it's like one thing is the basis the other thing is the not and but the first thing is also defined what by it not being the other. Makes it really hard um, to like and, pin anything down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but one is always privileged over mm-hmm. the other. That original one is privileged. And again, uh, I'm going to emphasize this is... It, saying that it's privileged is not something that it's reflected in reality. It's how the language treats yeah. it, right? Yeah. So masculine is privileged over mm-hmm. feminine. Light is privileged over dark. Good versus evil. Hero versus villain. Bravery. Cowardice. High. Low. Etc. 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 Um it gets a little bit complicated when there's stuff more like in the middle, like hot and cold. I don't know which one's the better one. Probably hot. It's it's the higher yeah, one. Yeah. But it, it gets better is not really the term. But yeah, privileged. Um, so a culture's values are made up of these binaries and how they feel about the binaries and what each of those terms are constituted of. So different cultures might have different sets of binaries. And of course, none of them are necessarily reflected in reality. Yeah. yeah. So... This idea is fairly uh, platonic in in the like Plato sense, um, and I'm not I'm really not interested in, in going in and explaining Plato because I haven't done enough reading. But um, it, Plato and other ancient Greek philosophers, you know, were kind of the founders of of Western thought, and so even though you know we don't think about them very much, and a lot of us you know haven't read them, they do influence how we think of reality yeah, yeah. because you know other elites read them and pass it on to commoners and then it just perpetuates forward etc um so, but uh plato's uh the, the, the platonic world kind of asserts that um reality is formed of like these these ideals right so like these oppositional binaries are a form of an yeah, ideal yeah. even though like we might not grasp specifically what it should be like there is something that it should be however that leads us to post-structuralism and derrida mm-hmm. so uh, a quick biography of derrida he's also an Algeria- algerian born french philosopher he's he's white though don't don't get it twisted mm. um his work is primarily being published in the late 60s to 90s and he's in conversation with a lot of these other philosophers um uh, at at the same time, and what the, what's going on right now is basically uh, faults are being pointed out in structuralism, and just like the foundations of Western thought, and just kind of this idea that we should kind of reinvent how we think of yeah, thought, yeah. and um, that's this is where post structuralism and post modernism kind of rise. They, they're both tied together; they're not quite the same thing. It, neither has a super strict definition because they're both defined by what they're not. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but he enters this conversation at the time in the 70s where people are really questioning these bases. And, he's, and he is specifically trying to figure out how to kind of reinvent uh, this, this this school of thought after, you know, everything's kind of falling apart. So Derrida is looking at how, you know, we have these signifiers and, and signified, right? Um, and he he's noticing here basically that words don't contain their own meaning. Meaning is actually always outside of the word Uh, what does that mean it's because a word by itself does not create enough concept uh, uh, context to explain what it is what's like it's like um that thing that i brought up 
um, about language where it's like all language is referential. Mm -hmm. So it like can't inherently hold meaning. Yeah. So uh, going back a bit, right, we were talking about how uh, everything's defined by what it's Mm -hmm. not, right? So meaning is actually deferred to all those other words that it's not, right? And I mean, when you think about how how do you explain what a word means, right? You need more mm-hmm. words, right? If you if you look up a word in the dictionary, you get a bunch of words, and if you look up those words, you get more words, and so it goes on into this giant loop of a circle, and it never really ends. Um, the the Platonic worldview and uh, some other philosophies basically and structuralists. Um, basically try to hold on to this implicit idea, even if they don't consciously think of it, that somewhere there is a true meaning, a true experience, a true reality. Perhaps it lies, it it has to like rely or it has to exist like outside of reality and not within the system because everything in the system uh, doesn't support mm-hmm. it, right? The, the, the foundation has to be outside. So, you know, uh, in, in the Bible, right, you have, like, the word, right? So God is an example of what where true meaning could yeah. exist. But also it could come from, like, matter or whatever we think of physical mm-hmm. reality. But the post-structuralists basically hold that, n- no, there is no true meaning yeah. anywhere. It's a, it's a giant, giant loop. Um, this, this structuralist idea of a, of a stable system falls apart because there is no stable ground to anchor the system. Every sign can change and every change affects the other signs. Just, yeah. You, you, on there's nowhere on. you can stop. Yeah. Um, so uh, I have another quote here from Eelton. Um, and I, I'm going a little long, I, I realize. Oh, no, it's um, all right. I'll, I'll try to get to the point, I think. Uh, Eagleton says, uh, reading a text is more like tracing this process of constant flickering than it is like counting the beads on the necklace. There's also another sense in which we never quite close our fists over meaning, which arises from the fact that language is a temporal process. When I read a sentence, the meaning of it is always somehow suspended, somehow something deferred or still to come. One signifier relates me to another, and to that another. Earlier meanings are modified by later ones, and although the sentence may come to an end, the process of language itself does not. There is always more meaning where that came from. So, yeah, we, we never... We can never get the full picture if we're using language because it's by its nature, there's, there are things, there's information not yeah, present. Yeah, it's like always an approximation. Yeah. Um, so this I, idea that Derrida is outlining is, is similar to postmodernism. Uh, this uh, postmodernism kind of focuses on this idea that everything is a text and worthy of analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and modernism basically holds on to uh, that that some things are like basically objectively good, but then postmodernism's like, what 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 are you founding that objectiveness yeah, on? Yeah, who's um, who's objectiveness? And, and is this? To, hmm? Who's objectiveness? Who has determined that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, like, I mean, just just for example of you know everything being a text, that means that everything can be you know analyzed like like a text because everything affects people like a text and and you can just follow a line of thought of like you know um you can analyze a book Mm -hmm. right as a text you can analyze a movie as a text you could probably analyze the trailer of a movie as a text you could probably analyze a shirt with you know a picture of the movie as a text like what is that saying you could probably analyze a plain t-shirt as a text what does that say about the person wearing it and when it's on the shelf 
what does the shelf say, right? Yeah, there's just there's just so much like all of our material, you know, surroundings and like the space and like our occupation of of place and all like it just there's just so like you could just go down a rabbit hole of of yeah. everything. Yeah. All of this kind of like everything is like an archive of of the past. Yeah. 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 Everything affects everything yeah. Yeah. in some way. Yeah. Um uh, so basically uh, this this idea uh, talks about how we should analyze everything's worthy of analysis, not just arbitrarily canonized mm-hmm. classics. Okay, so that's a lot of it's stuff. Quite, it's quite um, a lot. I've talked a lot, and I haven't even used the word deconstruction <laughs> yet. So what is deconstruction? So deconstruction is, and Derrida would disagree with the word method, but a method or operation it's it's interesting. He specifically said it's not analysis. It's not a critique. Mm-hmm. It's not a method. It's not an operation. Basically, because if it is any of those things, it can't work to dismantle the system because then it's part of the yeah. system. Yeah. So it can't be an is of anything, right? It, has, it can only be mm-hmm. nots, which is frustrating to talk about it. So I'm going to use is anyway. <laughs> Um, anyway, an operation where you look at a text, ideally a foundational text for a culture or thought, right? So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll get to, to why it's difficult to apply the worm in a second, but you could very deconstruction Derrida uses it on, um, you know, Plato's, uh, text itself, right? It's a foundational for Western thought, right? Mm, Yes. Or, um, the Bible or, you know, any other holy text or, you know, any other philosophers kind of stuff or, any book that is trying hard to push a certain ideology or way yeah, of thinking, yeah. right? So, I mean, looking at Ayn Rand's stuff is probably a good idea um, with deconstruction. Um, so uh, what you do is you identify an oppositional binary and then basically seek to destabilize it. In practice, what Derrida did is grab hold of one particular tiny section. I'm talking like one Mm -hmm. sentence of the text and then run it through the entire text to expose how um, a certain, uh, a binary that the text implicitly upholds and and glorifies or says is correct, betrays itself. So um, Eagleton says it better than I can. I'm probably just going to rephrase it. So structuralism was generally satisfied if it could carve up a text into binary oppositions, high, low, light, dark, nature, culture, and so on, and expose the logic of their working. Deconstruction tries to show how such oppositions, in order to hold themselves in place, are sometimes betrayed into inverting or collapsing themselves, or need to banish to the text's margins certain niggling details which can be made to return and plague them. Derrida's own typical habit of reading is to seize on some apparently peripheral fragment in the work, a footnote, recurrent minor term, or image, and work it tenaciously through to the point where it threatens to dismantle the oppositions which govern the text as a whole. The tactic of deconstructive criticism is to show how texts come to embarrass their own ruling systems of logic. Deconstruction shows this by fastening on the symptomatic points, the aporia or impasses of meaning, where texts get into trouble, come unstuck, or offer to contradict themselves. So uh, Derrida held that language and just human thinking in general, because it's all tainted by language, mm. are full of uh, aporia. So aporia are basically these points where logic clashes with an, into itself into an impossible problem. So these unanswerable questions that humans can never figure out because their premises are conflicting, right? The 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 two sides of a of what something is not 
are completely contradictory. Mm-hmm. So, like, what is love? What is justice? Right? Um, what is meaning of life? Etc. They're aporia because they're they're bases. Once you you know strip away everything else, just contradict each other completely, and you cannot resolve yeah, them yeah. ever. You can get closer to an understanding, but because meaning is defined by what it is not, we can never reach what it is. Uh, it makes everything seem really feel like uh, smoke, you know, slipping through yeah. your fingers. Yeah. Like, and I feel like it gets worse, too, when you start thinking about, like, matter and, like, how empty matter really is. I don't know. It just... Yeah. It really, like, it's so easy for everything to kind of fall into a part. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of yeah, it makes you worry about just the the nature of reality because there is there's no stable ground yeah. anywhere. So um, I've talked a lot about definitions. Let's let's start looking at mm-hmm. worm. Um, I need a little a, another second here to to start to figure out how we apply it to worm because, um, so deconstruction is a critical method, right? It's it's a way to criticize typically a mm-hmm. piece, right? So how you apply it to worm. And that's where it gets a little complicated. If we were used to deconstruct, if we were to use deconstruction directly, we would grab a non-specific, non-central line in Worm, and use it to show how the text falls apart. But I think doing that wouldn't really work or be fair to Worm. It or it would work, but it'd be kind of difficult because a Worm is not trying to put forward slash argue for a specific way of thinking. It's more of a critical yeah, piece, yeah. right? And B, Worm is told from Taylor's perspective, which is an intentionally skewed or incorrect one. Um, she's an unreliable narrator. So we'd be dis- deconstructing an unreliable narration. Yeah, yeah. it's something right? that's like already kind of wobbly. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's intentionally constructed to mm-hmm. fall apart. And, and additionally, deconstruction is destructive to the authority of a text, right? It's to show how the text yeah, is wrong. Yeah. And it you know, feels unfair to do that on something that is definitely not spawned ways of thought. You, like, I mean, it's not influential enough to, to do that. I think, you know, it'd be fair to do that to Harry Potter. Oh, sure, that should definitely but, happen. Yeah. Especially because Worm hasn't, it, it hasn't gone through a publishing process where, like, the ending influences the beginning, yeah, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it um, functions differently. Yeah. So, what's the other angle to use deconstruction? Um, well, I'm sure you guys have heard that Watchmen is a deconstruction. You've heard it described that way. And you've maybe seen that term on TV tropes and stuff. So the idea goes that since everything is a text and everything can be a critique, Watchmen, and I'm going to say Worm 2, is deconstructing concept or concepts or other media in society by seizing on those peripheral ideas, running them through to logical conclusions and other parts of the text that is society until they destabilize or dismantle the very placement of those oppositional Mm -hmm. binaries. So this understanding is a little bit different from the TV tropes understanding, which focuses on the idea that the deconstruction will point out that tropes aren't realistic by making them the focus of the reality, which, again, that understanding of deconstruction is totally valid. Um, It's just different from uh, Derridian deconstruction, just a little bit, because... The reading deconstruction is focused on those binaries inherent in the culture, while the other understanding is focused on tropes. Um, speaking of, if you want to see a great discussion of that uh, de- definition of deconstruction, you can watch uh, Jay Maniac's video on YouTube talking about if Worm is a deconstruction or reconstruction, and I found the video delightful, so please go watch that. 
Um, so finally, I've so I've defined all the stuff. It only took forty <laughs> minutes. Uh, let's ask: What is Worm deconstructing? What are the binaries it's destabilizing, and what are those peripheries it's latching onto? Um, and so I, I I don't want to dive too deep into all the applications of this right now. I think this is something that's just good to define. So in the future, we can look at this because you know the idea of deconstruction is you run it through the entire you know the entire text, and so it helps a lot to have more of the text available yeah. to us. I feel like this would be a good thing to like um, so return just, to at the very end. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's going to be useful mm-hmm. in the future. So I'm going to just identify a couple. Um, and I, I think we won't probably do whole episodes again on deconstruction, but I think we'll, we'll bring yeah, it up yeah. again. Um, so, so what here, what are some, some binaries? Um, what comes to mind are some of those that, um, Taylor and other characters identify other people mm-hmm. as, right? So Taylor identifies people as bully versus victim, right? Um, Sophia identi- identifies people on um, predator and prey. Yeah. And there's, of course, the, of course, there's the binaries of good and evil, right and wrong, hero and villain. Um, I think there's others like justified and unjustified, which I have another point on. Um, so I think... Uh, it, Worm is obviously doing a lot of things. I think specifically, one thing it's doing is deconstruction, deconstructing utilitarianism, um, running the conclusion of the ends justifying the means through basically a bunch of trolley problems. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like Taylor making Sundancer having have to burn civilians to mm-hmm. get the nine, um, and and Taylor is a proponent of. It, a kind of proponent of utilitarianism. Um, it, actually, so I have a I have a quote here, right, where she's talking to Sierra and Charlotte, um, and I'll just read it, and then I have some okay. thoughts on it. So Taylor says, "I don't believe in shouldn't. Like, there's some universal rules about the way things should be, the way people should act. Uh, I think this is Charlotte talking. So there's no right or wrong. People and animals should do whatever." No, there's always going to be consequences. Believe me when I say I know about that. But I do think there's always going to be extenuating circumstances where a lot of things we normally assume are wrong become excusable. Like rape? Are you going to tell me there's a situation where rape is okay? Charlotte asked. I would have thought I'd touched on a hot subject if her voice wasn't so level. I shook my head. No, I know some things are never excusable. So I, as I said, I don't think it would be right to deconstruct Worm mm-hmm. using this because the book intentionally shows how Taylor is at least somewhat off here. But this is kind of setting up one of those peripheral elements, right? Taylor is showing some utilitarian thinking here and then reveals this peripheral statement, quote, some things like rape are never excusable. And the idea can be run through this million word story and it starts challenging the very premises of right and wrong, justified and unjustified. Something can be justified even while it's unforgivable. Uh, like Regent's control of Shatterbird, mm-hmm. right? We've already kind of established how Regent's control is metaphorical, yeah, yeah. kind of like rape, mm-hmm. right? And they're they're doing it. We're not even halfway through the story. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I feel like Taylor especially, yeah. too, like kind of prioritizes this sort of like, in, in the way that she like progresses through her like linear thinking, she does a lot mm-hmm. of this where she, she justifies things or she sort of like... You know, she finds those extenuating circumstances, um, mm-hmm. and and sort of like rationalizes them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she inevitably, you know, almost intentionally runs into them and then runs yeah, past yeah. them. Yeah. Um, 
In addition to utilitarianism, she's also, or Worm, I think, is also deconstructing other moral systems, right? The whole superheroic sense of mm-hmm. right and wrong, um, always doing the right thing. Um, legend and Panacea's notions of right and wrong intentionally fall apart in this story pretty quickly. Um, but there's there's plenty of other um, ways that this falls apart, right? You know, just beautiful and, and mm-hmm. ugly, right? Just the fact that, or I mean, it's probably another uh, other words that are... F- suit this better but the idea of just image in general and taylor you know controlling bugs while while being a hero right yeah the, the like traditional um, sense of like a good sort of power and like a you know an acceptable sort of power and and not acceptable and the yeah. things that would be deemed villain or deemed hero like it it all sorts of because we have been placed in in this in the perspective of someone who does not align with that we mm-hmm we also see that sort of like falling apart. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually, I have some more definitional stuff about deconstruction that I should mention. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't find what text this came from, but I know that my professor who's teaching this talked about this. Um, so he was talking about, you know, how deconstruction is, is applied and there, there's, there's multiple steps mm-hmm. to it. And, I'm really hoping I have the, the the order of the steps correct, but basically, the the first step right is where you're showing how the binary is not as absolute as it is, yeah, right? Yeah. So I, this this is one that Worm is especially doing, um, where you know hero and villain the lines are are pretty blurred. And in, in another context, it would be like how man and woman are not like there's there's stuff in between. There's uh, they're they're not nearly a, as absolute, mm-hmm. right? And because binaries are oppositional the closer and the more in-betweens you have uh, the closer and more in-betweens you have the more the the less meaning that those words have so like hero has to define itself against villain so the more heroic the villains are the less significant the term hero Mm -hmm. means and it's the same thing if they become more villainous uh same thing with with good and evil um especially when you add in another level of the binary, right? You have hero and villain, and then you have serial mass murderer villain. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly the villains don't look so the, villainous. Like, wider range, it gets so much more, so much, so much less defined. Like all the, ca- like the categories really start to like yeah. lose any sort of traction. Yeah. The the second step um, is basically reversing the, the binary where one side was, was normally privileged. Now you privilege mm-hmm. the other side. You show how women are more essential than men or how villains are more useful and heroic yeah. than heroes. Yeah. Um, and then there's a third step where you kind of dissolve it entirely, but I'm not entirely sure. I, I think that's a, we're at the point where you get to those impossible meanings yeah. and you, you show how the entire binary in the first place cannot mm-hmm. exist really. Um, so uh, that's that's what I've got, I think. <laughs> that's quite a lot. Yes, yes. I hope that wasn't too anything for people listening, too, too boring, too much, too complicated. Yeah. Too... It's really hard to tell what it, while I'm talking. I, maybe it was super, super simple. And people are like, Matthias, you're, you're being condescending by assuming that it was difficult. So, But there's so many like, little intricacies of it. At the very least, I can safely say that I kind of am almost starting to understand yeah. it. So... Uh, I, I I don't claim full uh, understanding of of this quite yeah. yet. So, I think it's it's one of those things where it's like like it it should be simple, 
because like we're talking about mm-hmm. language and we're talking about how language functions and all of this you know and so yeah it feels like it should be simple but then when you really like when you actually start looking at it and like the way that it functions and the way that we use it and the way there the so many things that we choose not to acknowledge when examining you are forced to acknowledge all of those kind of like the like unstableness like the instability i guess of 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 mm-hmm. every like of every interaction that we have because of the use of language and it just it gets so complicated yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's really hard to talk about the system from within yes. the system so and and, and that's but then we can't like we can't think outside of it because it's like yeah what is thought that isn't bound by language you know yeah <sighs> yes if you if you can't leave the box how can you think exactly. outside it yeah mm. yeah Okay, well, that's what I have on Derrida. Um, if you guys are further confused, feel free to send <laughs> us an email, and I'll try my best to explain or try to understand it better myself. Uh, but before before we uh, end, we have two two more bits, right? We're going to talk about favorite mm-hmm. powers, then our themes and theories, and then we will do our yeah. outro. So uh, <laughs> let's let's finish off with with some more lighthearted Yay. stuff. Uh, Clarence, what was your favorite power from these arcs? Already, okay. I guess this isn't like a lighthearted thing, though. Um, I was just—I mean, mine isn't um, either. So with with Legends' power, specifically Legends' flight. I know I went like really into detail about like how terrified I was of space, so I'm not like uh-huh. super excited about the space part of it. But the concept of shutting mm-hmm. down thought, like just like the the like the that that just sounds so like mentally soothing to like not have to think it, when moving it does so sound fast like med- meditation yeah just I, I really like that bit the not thinking bit yeah so yeah when he goes the, the faster he goes the more the, the mm-hmm. less he thinks yeah, yeah. what's what i find really reassuring I, I think that idea to me could be really scary the idea of like you eventually go so fast that you can't ever think the thought that you want to yeah. stop and so you just hurtle on forever but I think he specifically says it like when he gets to the destination, he would start thinking yeah, again yeah. that he would automatically stop. Yeah. So it just it's comforting. Nice. Mm-hmm. He's he's made of light too. Yeah. You know, he he goes into that other form and just takes in some light and then heals, ah, which is crazy legend. to me. Legend. What a legend. So iconic. I already made that joke. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, what about okay. yours? Uh, uh, I I want to talk about Crawler's power. I think it's just so interesting. Mm-hmm. I want a, a story not necessarily set in in parahumans' world, but a any a story anywhere about someone with this horrible, horrible yeah. power, uh, where he just gets more and more mutated mm-hmm. over time based on harm, intentionally placing himself in harm's way. Like just, just I just want to see the first week where he got yeah, his power, yeah. right? He got it, and he probably like just got a knife and just stabbed himself for like an hour. Like, what's our, it's it's just such a such a self destructive mentality. Yeah, but like I, I your mean, body th- feeds. It, it eventually gets him. It's it's so it is so self self destructive that it actually like even if it's supposed to be self destructive in a self perpetuating yeah. sense, right? Where it he just can can escalate more and more over time, but it, his his need to hurt himself is what kills mm. him at the end. It, it's not any other, you know, subversion. It's just eventually he just bit off more than yeah. he could chew. Yeah. I also have to wonder, what situation makes you adapt to spit acid as a self-defense? Mm. That's pretty... I don't know. Yeah. 
terrible situation. And I also wonder what are the other paths he could have gone yeah. down, right? Because he didn't necessarily have to turn into a bus-sized, like, 12-legged... Yeah, there's so many, there's so many things that he could have, like, legs. pursued. Yeah. And he can t- still talk. Oh, yeah. Which is creepy. That is. I don't... I feel like I didn't pay attention very much when he talked. Because I... I, I was spent, like, more, more time noticing other people thinking about him. Mm-hmm. Oh, so strange. Super creepy. Very creepy. Okay, that's our favorite powers for this week. Uh, let's get to our themes and theories. So we basically have two, two things to, to mention here, right? So uh, themes and theories for future episodes, guys. Um, basically, uh, as, as we described, we're basically like headcanons for characters, for, for um, theories. Um, so, you know, possible explanations for why characters are the way they are that are not influenced by other stuff later on in the... Well, it can be influenced by, but they can't be pulled out it, don't don't just say you know a fact that comes out in arc 23 or whatever um f- for us um and, and ideally not influenced by word of god either or word not you know what i mean um yeah uh extra textual stuff that oh, Wado okay. has said yes i was like is this um, like some telephone call that you yeah, get not, not literally not literally word gotcha. words okay. from god. uh and then themes so what kinds of themes do you guys think are you know, worthy of examination in the story. You know, sacrifice was mentioned last time, and I thought that was really men- really relevant. And maybe we should have focused on it more this time as well. But, yeah, we need oh well. like we need to make Next it like time. a list. Yes, we yes, I will probably do that probably. <laughs> so uh, Vladislav says uh, rules and limitations. Um, they say, I think this book heavily dives deep into in- inspecting what boundaries are set for people and which of them they set themselves. With a number of characters limited by outside forces, dragon, shadowstalker, etc., and by their own rules, panacea, spitfire, etc., they are contrasted against truly unbound for morality. From they are trans- contrasted against the truly unbound for morality slaughterhouse nine, and they are in turn contrasted by an increasingly ruthless Taylor and the heroes of Brockton Bay. Oh, that's a really good point. Of like, there are there are a lot like there definitely are like limitations. Yeah, I didn't think about like dragon and shadowstalker together. Because they both have this sort of, like, mm-hmm. imposed outside force. Yeah, th- there's 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 a lot of, like, themes of, like, controlling other people's behavior and, like, actions. Oh, yeah. Um, very materially. Um, mm-hmm. Of, like, creating, like... I didn't bring it up in my, you know... What do we call them? Explorations? Um, mm-hmm. But the, like, the whole deal with the wards and all of that, which I definitely want to explore, but I'll do it later. Um, but, like, this sort of, like, governing of behavior... Is very like yeah, very much present. Yeah, it's it's interesting how, <laughs> for the good people, rules seem to hold them back from mm-hmm. doing good, and for the bad, rules don't work on them at all. Like Panacea. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I feel like and and Shadowstalker too. She totally flouts it. Yeah, so. it's they it it's they're limiting. I think when they feel pointless mm-hmm. um it's kind of like if you need rules they mm. don't work the dragon does not need rules yeah. i mean she needs some even though she doesn't like it but um she does she doesn't need them to you know be a good person and so they're more yeah limiting yeah but we're also i was thinking about this too when i was like expounding um on dragon <laughs> uh earlier about like we we have we really only have her perspective of the situation Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, so we're think like we're thinking 
definitely like that she needs to, you know, have, have, you know, autonomy over herself and all of this, but I mean, we don't know what she could do. So there's this yeah. whole like large question mark. I don't know. I mean, she is an That's AI. True. That's true. She's not human. How, how mm-hmm. do you know? All right. Um, so additionally, um, I roll uh, expert eye roller posted on the last uh, perspective thread uh, with this really great examination of uh, a particular theories uh, theorists um, theories. Uh, ag- I think it's pronounced agamben. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, as applied to worm. So to summarize, they theorist, were yeah. examining how a Greek hmm? theorist. Um, I not. I don't think they were Greek themselves. I think they were building or. I don't think they were in ancient Greek themselves. I think they're building mm, okay, off of okay. the ancient Greeks. Yeah, an Italian philosopher. Mm, okay. At what what time period? Uh, modern, I oh. think. There's a picture oh, okay. of him. Uh, he's 78 wow. now. So. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, Giorgio Agamben. So, um, looking at these uh, ancient Greek concepts of uh, the spheres of life. Mm-hmm. Um so, to, but to summarize, uh, expert eye rollers' points uh, were, were especially around uh, Taylor and Arms Master and how individuals are placed in and outside of the law and how the law can sort of ignore the actions of those against the people outside, placed outside the law. Um, they, they, they talk a lot more uh, and there's a lot to learn about how um, uh, expert eye roller summarizes these the, the, the positions of the theorists. I think it's uh, really worth a read um, and it's not even that yeah, long. Yeah, but it's like, really like in-depth. 500 words it's very yeah. good yeah yeah i i really i mean it, it it'll just take a mm-hmm. minute to read and i think it's pretty relevant and you know maybe maybe i'll we'll, we'll try to do something like that for a future episode because i don't have that many theories the theorists in mind oh. left so um it, there's this really great line that um I'd, I'd like to point out plot that i think is um something that we sort of talked about but um the endbringers uh, breaches into the legal system itself have already been normalized, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, talking about how the you know how you you were talking about Clarence, um, the abnormal bodies, right? The people outside, yeah, yeah. Um, and how it they're they're kind of pushed back into the norm. Endbringers are not they're they're normalized. Yeah, they're like a that, built that going in, in and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, which I thought was really really interesting. So, uh, yeah, go uh, please go read that. It's it's yeah, real quick, do. and of it's course, so interesting. Um, you, you know, send us send us your own themes and theories for the next thing, right? And maybe look at it, another theorist yourself or something like that. You, I mean, you could even Google literary theorists and just start clicking around. Um, there's a lot of sites that are they're fairly easy to navigate and can summarize different positions. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, um, the day that this comes out is the. Doof cast on Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, it's a Council of Doof episode, so everyone who listens to it can go and vote on it uh, to see if it belongs in the Doof canon. So I would say please go listen and vote yes because Fury Road mm-hmm. is amazing. Um, additionally, I, I just want to really talk about uh, I, I want to talk about Pale Road real quick. It's going awesome right now. I, I went on I, I started reading for like four chapters like after one point six something like that and i'm really glad i jumped back in because i would say that the end of arc one is like worms arc eight it's the big hook um i mean there might be a even better one later on i I don't know but um where i was like i was excited for what was to come now i really need to know what's coming Mm -hmm. next you know um so this there's really interesting stuff going on um actually there's a really 
the way there's not no spoilers here so i'll keep things vague but the way that the, that last interlude that the interlude of arc one is used mm. like its purpose in the story is interesting and i think different from how interludes normally are oh, used in wild Bow works so please clarence you need to read it so i can talk <laughs> about it with list. you yes um <laughs> anyway so uh and last but not least there's tons of uh stuff going on on the doof twitch channel i think it's worth mentioning uh, elliot and his sisters are playing games together i think and uh he's also preparing for uh the new the new video series that's eventually going to go on um talking about uh video games and that's different from the game club and then scott is playing through a lot of i say a lot i think all of the final fantasy games so um is that like a, there's, there's a lot of like gaming stuff going on games or like a specific uh the the final fantasy games are basically a series um of sort of sequels they're they're they are all similar but not the same okay it yeah it's an interesting series you've heard of final fantasy 7 though i'm pretty sure with um cloud and other characters if you googled it i'm sure you would recognize i have definitely heard the phrase final fantasy yeah but that's all yes yeah cool (laughs) cool so also if you like what we do here at doof media consider donating a single dollar per month or whatever else you can afford um it's it's due to the generosity of our patrons that we're able to create shows like this one um the patron dollars are what pays like our hosting fees and like how we're able to purchase like the microphone and all these like material things that need to get done it's very helpful and there's like cool stuff like the like the patron Mm -hmm. boards and everything Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so you can go to uh, patreon.com slash doofmedia and see all the great patron rewards we have. Uh, as always, as we say all across the network, the best one uh, we all think believes um, starts at the $1 level, which is access to the Doof Discord, where so much uh, discussion goes on. Um, I, I've really enjoyed actually uh, reading the live reads from the, the, the pale discussion and of course uh, everyone talking about th- this show and, and other you know the, it's it's so it's it's so interesting to see discussion prompt from something we say on the podcast and then it veer off into yeah, a different direction so, I love that so, so much it's so fascinating to watch the like direction of yeah. the dialogue because mm-hmm. it, yeah. it can get like it, um, it, it's such ah sorry I I, I just you know yes. it's fascinating I mean you you and me we took a, a, a class on how basically on how communities communicate with each other right and um i i didn't i ended up doing it basically over the threads the the we've got Mm -hmm. worm threads um because you know i only can think about one thing guys it's it's all encompassing um but i i had been tempted to do it on the discord just because it's just such an interesting it's, it's so interesting how every single platform and then every like group within that platform have like different yeah, cultures. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other way you can help us if you, you know, don't have uh, spare cash, which we totally understand, um, is to leave a rating or a review or rating and a review. Um, we actually had our, our, our first review a while back, at a, which I found so surprising um, that, that it was that it was so mm. early. So um, we're going to go ahead and read it out. Um, so Kylet30 says, great recap. 
As someone who has read Worm fully through once but has not been able to revisit since, Matthias and Clarence take me back through Wild Bo's wonderful world one book at a time. Well, I would recommend listening to Scott and Matt's We've Got Worm for the first time reader for first time readers after each arc. Decomposing Worm is a great way to relive the world for those who have finished the story and are looking to revisit it again. They provide a knowledgeable summary of a, the story book by book. More excitingly, they release a deep dive literary analysis after each recap episode. I find myself eagerly awaiting every Friday to tune in with these great guys. Thanks for all the work you guys put into this, and I'm really loving it so far. Thanks so much, wow. Kyla. That's wow, that's, that's so, so much. Nice. That's so good. It's ah wonderful, overwhelming. Yeah, that's ah that makes me so happy. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so now now Clarence and I have uh, stuff to pull out whenever we wow, feel bad. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really good. Um. Uh, lastly, um, I I keep forgetting to do this. Uh, I I. I I want to apologize directly to Wildbo because I keep meaning to plug the Patreon and then I keep forgetting. So <laughs> I, I'm starting next time, starting next week. I'm putting it in the script. So I'm not going to, in fact, I'll do it right now. I'm, I'm writing it down. I'm doing it all caps. Plug Wildbo. <laughs> because Wildbo is the one that created this amazing work that uh, we, we are, you know, spending so yeah. much time on and uh, we wouldn't, be doing this kind of analysis and i i probably wouldn't be so excited to do analysis if wildbo hadn't written this stuff and then scott and matt hadn't started doing mm-hmm. we've got worm so um please go to wildbo's patreon and consider donating him some in fact i would say consider donating to him before you consider donating to us that would be my personal uh consideration because yeah we wouldn't have all this incredible incredible content if it wasn't for him yeah. so you can, uh, if you want to reach us, uh, we have now a Twitter, right? Uh, at oh, Decomposing yeah, Pod on, on Twitter. That's right. Uh, where um, we're going to tweet out stuff. That's where you would find the announcement that this episode is going to be a couple hours late because it is going to be a couple hours late. Um, uh, of course, it should. I hope it still comes out Friday. I think it will. We'll see. Um, or you can send us an email at... Uh, decomposingpodcast at gmail.com and of course going to the uh, reddit thread and talking about it there i think that's probably the best place but if you don't have a reddit account or you just want to reach us in a different way emailing us is a great way to do that Uh, next week is our overview episode for arcs 15 through 17 this is our smallest book only 222,000 words i think so i'm excited to get back on track and have an episode that's less than three hours long we'll see i think this might be less than three hours i mean might be like exactly three hours i mean you know optimism (laughs) optimism um also so we're uh starting to take questions again then so don't forget to uh send us your questions for clarence and your themes and theories for those arcs um starting you know next never mind i've explained it too many times and i get confused every time while i'm explaining it but basically if you send us your questions under the discussion thread for Mm -hmm. this episode we will respond to them in the next two episodes um, and even if you don't have any questions for Clarence or themes and theories, we'd love to hear what you guys thought of the episode. So. Yeah, we just, it's cool to like see everybody responding and thinking and I don't know, sharing their experience it, all together. It's so weird that this conversation exists outside of the moment in time where we're talking yeah. about it. <sighs> yeah. It's really weird. Conversation of mankind, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all we have for y'all this week. Next week, we'll have our overview episode. Um, Arcs 15, Colony, 16, Monarch, and 17, Migration, which, yeah, there we go. I'm excited.